All right, guys, what is happening? We are back again, another episode of the Off Track Experience podcast. Really excited to bring you guys this one. I get to sit down with an absolute legend who is Lee Hogan. Now, Lee's probably one of the best motocross racers to come out of Australia and one of the guys that was right at the pointy end of the sport for a long time back in the 90s uh, in Supercross and in Nationals. So, really, really cool dude. Anyway, I really wanted to sit down with him because he was one of the guys that was actually in the coaching role as he was still racing professionally and that's something I'm kind of currently getting into so really wanted to see his point of view on that and how it kind of all it all worked and the negatives and positives of that and how the uh his forced retirement actually put him more into the coaching role which then has actually turned into something amazing and he's helped so many so many young up-and-coming kids in Australia and now runs junior development team so kind of just does a little bit of everything but really cool to see and now he's actually started up his tours in the the high country so we go into that as well but really really down-to-earth guy and i was really enjoyed doing this chat uh before we get into it love to thank the sponsors bluegrass helmets those guys have been been hooking up the podcast and being with us the whole time so really good products and really glad to push that but hope you guys enjoy this podcast really like to get lee actually in to be a little bit more of a studio setting and not on a zoom chat but hopefully now that melbourne's all opened up we can do that but Really hope you guys enjoy the chat. Cheers. I was going to say, have you, um, <laughs> this is actually your first podcast. My first ever. The first ever. I'm, um, I'm, pretty first actually, ever. I'm pretty actually shocked by that considering, <laughs> considering the background. Well, yeah. And I'm pretty shocked too, you know, but uh, I get asked all the time. Um, I can't believe it's, uh, it's finally happened. I'm excited. Pop the cherry. I reckon Gypsy's going to be pretty angry. I reckon he's probably been been thinking about heading his back. He actually he sent me a message today when he saw I was doing it. He's like, "Oh, that should be good." But <laughs> uh, so yeah, on. No, I'm uh, I'm pumped. And mate, just right off the bat, I just thought I'd let you know I've been keeping up with your Instagram stuff today. Yeah, uh, and you watching your own surgery. <laughs> I've actually done oh, the man. same thing. I've had. Uh, well, see, I've had I've had multiple forearm surgeries with radius and ulna. And, oh, really? Uh, from, from injury? Yeah, or? I think it was my second or third surgery where I, I requested that I could actually watch it and not get put under. Yeah. So uh, my, sur- my surgeon said, yeah, no worries. Um, the only thing, the prerequisite was you had to tie my right arm down just in case I lost it during the surgery and uh, started wanting to punch on or something. But uh, so, so my right arm was strapped to the side of the bed and I got to watch the whole thing, which was pretty cool. I, I still vividly remember it. Was, what, did you get the surgery due to an injury or something that you need to get sorted out for a, for a racing thing? No, it was uh, injury, yeah. All my forearms, there's a pretty common thing in Supercross you know, you come up short on a triple or something, that the main impact is those forearm bones, the radius and the ulna. So, um, yeah, a lot of people get different injuries. Mine, I, I had multiple forearm breaks, so radius and ulna on both arms. So, yeah, it was, really? uh, yeah, it was, was my second one where I actually got to watch it, which was pretty cool. I was going to say, was there much of a build-up leading into that surgery, whether you would do it or you wouldn't do it? Or, like, what was your reasoning behind doing it? <clears throat> Well, there was no choice in it. When your arm's facing 90 degrees straight up that way because you've cased a jump and you're, uh, you're, you're looking. I, the first time I did it, I didn't even crash. I was still on the bike. I, I cased a, a triple. It was a, a, a 1991 model Cowie 125 two-stroke. And straight out of the crate, I went to go race it in a Supercross alongside the 250 two-stroke as well. And it bogged on the upper amp of a triple. Just nothing. Just went, and I just went, uh-oh, this is not going to be good. 
and I nosed it into the lander, into the third one, and I didn't even crash. I rode it out, and as I went to ride off, I looked down, and my arms went down and back up like that, and I went, oh, that's not good. <laughs> so I just ghosted the bike and fell off the back of it and uh, and just laid there on the ground, and I went to hold my left arm, and then my right one went and fell that way, and I went, Oh, okay. Both the time. <laughs> I just waited, <laughs> waited for the uh, ambulance to come around and pass me the green whistle. So, so yeah, that was my first experience of, uh, of breaking the wrist at 17 years of age. Oh, true. So you started, okay, just to take it back. When did you start racing um, Supercross? Because I feel a lot of people I know will listen to this. It's probably, because even myself, like I know, I know you now, but it's just like leading into um, racing Supercross. How old were you when you actually started and where was it? Yeah, so for us back then, we were lucky. We had uh, Supercross as a junior. It was was quite cool. So I got to race all around the country racing Supercross as a 15-year-old. So I won a Supercross championship in 1988 as a junior RLH. So we got to do quite a few Supercross uh, races around the place. We got to race in Burswood uh, in the Dome over in Western Australia in front of a sold-out crowd and... So, so, yeah, Supercross started from an early age. And to be honest, I got to race as a nine-year-old on a YZ80 watching with Jeff Leesk and uh, Jimmy Ellis from America. Uh, I got to race as a nine-year-old on a YZ80 racing Supercross. Was that a bit surreal? At that, did you have, like, fond memories of that as well? Yeah, it was. Um, it was crazy. And I mean, I even remember just thinking, how are we supposed to see at nighttime? I, I mean, I raced the, the main <laughs> event on stadium without, without goggles on because the lights in the stadium outdoors, it was the Speedway Stadium in Bunbury. Yeah. Uh, the lights were reflecting too much on the goggles. So um, lucky I, I got the holy and, and got the win uh, because I don't know what I would have done if I had been mid-park and cop and roost. But uh, mm. I elected to not wear goggles because it was... It was just too hard to uh, too too hard to see with the light and the goggles. I was going to say, I feel like that's a bit of a, a flex on the other competition as well. Even as a nine year old, you're going to bust out the no goggles on a on a grid start. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I wish I could. I wish I could call that and say it was a flex. I bet it was, it was no uh, intention with that. It was a last minute thing. I'm just looking. I think my dad had probably strapped about six tear offs on because there'd been a bit of rain, and back then, you know. Uh, tear-offs there were only one like there was no laminated tear-offs back then so every every single tear-off you had on was like looking through a set of uh you know a set of some kids um reading glasses that couldn't see you know yeah so it's got vaseline like, on the I'm lens doing this man i can't do it shut it <laughs> yeah. down yeah so that's when it all started and then so how long into was that did that just spark from that point on like and the the flex on everyone with the no goggles and then just go get the one we just was that when you just knew like this is was that like a bit of a turning point do you reckon in your I guess the beginning of your racing career. Well, I've got to say, uh, at that stage, we didn't get to race Supercross for many years after that particular one, uh, and uh, Supercross came way later down the track. Uh, mm. And when it did, it was exciting um, for for me. I, I always loved Supercross, but I liked outdoors and two totally different skill sets needed for it. And we had con- certain competitors. I still remember racing Anthony Go but who to this day, I don't know if you've heard of, of Goey. No, uh, he, no. He's one of the most skilled, skilled motocross, supercross uh, racers to ever, 
you know, uh, I, I guess be born in this country here in Australia. And he went on to MotoGP and, uh, and I think most people in the industry know is that it was a pretty sad story what happened to him and the road that he went down. But still, to this very day, I, I don't know anyone that could, you know, race against us in an indoor supercross where only eight people make it into a main event. Mm. All, all the factory riders in the country, only eight people got to make it in. And he could almost have a first-turn crash and still come through the park and beat all of us and take the win in 20 laps. And really? these races were about six or seven minutes long. He was that much of a freak. So mm. You said there at the end just before that it was a bit of a sad story how it ended. I've, I've got, I um, don't know who you're actually talking about all the story, the ending. Is it something you want to go into? Uh, look, he was super talented and just ended up, going down the wrong road with a few things and it's mm. escalated uh you know got to the point of where things went bad and he lost rides and then it went from bad to worse but uh mm. yeah look i mean it, it, uh, all new to the podcast thing i don't know too much about what we can and can't say but i think if, if you google the name you'll uh find you'll, out you'll the path find it pretty quickly what happened but but for me personally i still remember him as a 16 year old when he turned senior and we were already you know well into our seniors Mm. Um, he was just a freak of nature and so talented. Mm. And it was quite funny to see him go from motocross from number one in the country and decide at such a young age that he didn't want to race anymore and yeah. go to road racing and then just be an absolute freak of nature, mm. uh, doing things that no one had ever seen on a road bike before. Uh, and then it all turned pear-shaped pretty quickly, mm. unfortunately. I was going to say, because with you running the junior development team and obviously I see it in myself, you see when you see potential and especially someone that stands out so much and like you see it or not, well, it could be wasted on some, but it almost physically hurts you because you like, you know what someone's capable of. And obviously you're someone that's good at seeing that. I feel like in a certain sense, I can, I can see that in kids. And it's like, you almost, when you see them doing the wrong thing, it's like, you almost just want to grab them and be like, like, oh, it's like, you can do so much, but is that something you felt like you've always kind of had an eye for, or is that something that has just come with, I guess, experience and time? Yeah, you got it, Dino. I think you would see the same thing, although you're, you're still in the big scheme of things compared to me, you're a spring chicken. Yeah. <laughs> you got so many years ahead of you, but you would have already seen it in your area with mountain biking you can spot kids coming through and and just like me I, I run a team we get to see kids that are super talented all the talent in the world right but no work ethic or desire or drive mm. and desire and drive is going to beat talent every day right mm. and if you've got both of them you got the ticket but it's so hard to find a kid that has all the talent in the world and the desire and the drive, it's a, it's a bit of a juggling act and it's very rare that we come across all of it at the same time. Do you find when you get someone like that, because I've noticed when you do find someone you don't, because I've heard a thing, you want to, you want someone to get pulled into something, like you get, want them to do better for themselves and that like idea of winning a World Cup or winning a Moto MXGP or something and like that should pull them out of bed, that should pull them into the gym. But if you start to just push them into something, you'll push them out of it. And I feel like you'd see this with so many people say moto parents where they'll push their kids out of the sport. They'll, they'll over, overbear, over push. And it just, it ruins it for the kids and it pushes them out. But it's like, how do you get, you've got to put it in that kid's mind to like get it. They need it within themselves to pull them up and pull them into like what they need to do. But with, with that, like, yeah, very true. 
Um, I, it doesn't matter if you're talking football or you're talking motocross or you're talking whatever. Junior sports, it has its own life force of its own and the parents that you get along the way. And I'm starting to see this now at the moment with my boy Noah, who's eight years old and he's at the top of his game with BMX. And I'm starting to see with some of the junior parents there. Um, it's crazy. Junior parents, you, you can get the best and the worst in the world. And, yeah. and, it's, and it's crazy with um, some of the stuff that we have to deal with and what we see. And from a junior team perspective, from managing the motocross team, I get all walks of life. I can tell yeah. you, I've had kids come that have got the best parents in the world, the most supportive, but the kids just don't have what it takes. And yeah. then I've had kids come that could be the next Jet Lawrence, the next Chad Reed. But the parents are just so out of whack and do the wrong thing and they micromanage the kids, won't let me do my thing. So I get all walks of life. And I tell you, that's one of the hardest things I must say is dealing with the parents. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that they're all bad, but as a bit of a generalisation, you get some pretty, uh, pretty crazy things you have to deal with. Well, it's such a big spanner in the works because you could be putting some ideas into this kid of what he needs to do. And then if you've got parents that are overbearing, it's almost just like you write all these notes on the whiteboard and they just come rub them off again. And then it's just either starting again. And that'd be, that'd be so hard, especially if you see so much potential in a kid and then the parent is the one holding them back. And even I know it's they're overbearing because sometimes they care too much. Sometimes they just don't have the right approach. But do you ever have talks with parents and sit down with them or are you more or less it's focused on the, on the actual racer and, or do, do you try and have like an open relationship with everyone and see how they, they, which way they want to fall with decision-making? Well, I've got to be honest in saying that 80% of my year is taking up with talking and dealing with the parents. Now, mm. whether that be, and I'm not just talking at the track and at the race meeting, I'm talking mm. with day to day dealing with the family it's the dads 90% of the time that are doing the parts orders that are saying, mm. oh, should we go do this race? Or, you know, we're three days out from the national championships. Um, should we go and uh, practice for five hours on this sand track over here? Like, it's honestly, it's the parents 80% of the time that I'm dealing with. Mm. Most of the time, the kids are absolutely fine. And they'll yeah. be guided by you and do what you tell them to do. Mm. But it's, it's trying to manage the parents that literally takes up most of my time. And it's yeah. not such a bad thing because for parents, it's a learning experience for them as well. And, mm. and I can, honestly, I've got at the moment, I've got one of uh, the most talented young kids in the country at the moment. He's possibly the best junior that we've got. Uh, Campbell Williams is his name. And his dad, Gavin Williams, He's such a, yeah, he calls me a lot. He's got a lot to say, um, but he takes everything on board, on board and he's such a learner. Like he, he yeah. really responds and he's not trying to push me in certain directions or whatever. He takes it all on board and it's mm. really refreshing to have a, a parent like that because I've got to say it's a minority. Mm. <laughs> in the big scheme of things, it's a minority. Yeah. Now, it's definitely one of those things where I think a lot of people, they don't see the value in every part of their life being healthy. Like it's like they might be doing really poorly on the motocross track or mountain bike track or a job or whatever, but you kind of got to peel it back. It's like, well, how's your relationship at home? How's your relationship with your girlfriend? How's all these little relationships you have or like, I guess, dealings you have with people that will affect you on the racetrack. And I think a lot of any kind of athlete will oversee that and they will look past that. But like, it's such a crucial relationship, obviously parents, especially at that age in your life that they need to be 
everything needs to be working as one. And I know, like you say, you get some amazing parents and then obviously sometimes it's a bit harder. But when I first started to look for coaching kids, that was a big a big part of my like choice because I wasn't like, oh, people weren't coming for me to pay me. I wanted to find someone. And like you said, once you, you can find the kid you can fi- and you can find the parents and you start to put all these pieces together, it just makes it flow so much, so much more smoothly. Yeah, it, it's not just about the parents, but also about me as a team manager. And I, and I come back to when I first, back in 93, when I first rode for Peter Jackson Yamaha for Craig Dack, he yeah. just retired from racing at the end of 92. And he was, he was one of the best we've ever had in Australia. And his first job when he retired was to take over the management of the biggest team in the country. And his next job, he wanted to sign me as his, as his number one rider to go and win championships. And I still remember Dakar back then. Still to this day, he's the team manager of CDA Yamaha. He's, he's an icon in our sport. But the DACA that we see today is night and day different to the DACA that I had to deal with in 93. And I don't necessarily mean in a bad way, mm-hmm. but DACA just coming fresh off his racing career, he just wanted to micromanage everything. He was a team manager, but he wanted to be a team coach, mechanic, psychologist, you name it. He was trying to do everything. So he was mm-hmm. micromanaging and you couldn't get two more removed riders from myself and Daka. We're totally different. He was a, a hard charger, just an absolute bulldog. When you watched him ride, he um, he looked like he was charging so hard. I guess like I guess in your sport, someone like a, a, a Bruni, perhaps, right? Yeah, yeah. And when you compare him to, I guess who's a who's a like a smooth, calculated, like a, a Greg Menard, perhaps. For yeah, example. Troy 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 Brosnan or something like that along Brosnan, those lines. Uh, Exactly. Perfect yeah. example. Uh, not trying to put myself on their level, but in comparison. <laughs> no, I get you. I get you. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in comparison to Dakar, I was a smooth and calculated rider, but when I was at my best, I didn't really look like I was going fast, right? So I'd come back in after time qualifying and Dakar would be like, come on, man, what are you doing? You need to, you, you, no intensity in the corners. You need to pick up your pace here and there. And I, I'm like, Dakar, I just went fastest in qualifying, man, you know? <laughs> so yeah. he was trying to micromanage and do so many different things. Whereas now, if you look at the Dakar that we see today, and he's brought, brought through some of the best riders on the planet, mm. he doesn't do that anymore. He does his job, which is team manager, and he lets everyone else do their role. And that's what I've had to do as a team manager is to realise there's certain things, there's certain riders that need me to fix little technical flaws they might not be able to get a good start on concrete for example mm. they might not be able to get up on top of the whoops and then i'll take that upon myself to to try to fix that but mm. i don't feel as if i need to do every tiny little thing in the whole program anymore and that's been a big growing thing for me that i definitely used to micromanage just like daca did and mm. to be able to step back and let other people do some things has been a a big learning thing for me as well. Yeah. Do you think that just came with just experience with seeing people and being able to read people? Yes. Uh, and also figuring out the hard way that you just can't do everything. It mm. doesn't matter. You might want to um, fix their diet, fix their training, fix all of their, uh, you know, their flaws in their riding, and then also be their right-hand man come race day. But mm. you just can't humanly 
do that. You can't possibly do that. Mm. So you need to rely and put trust in the process and other people doing what they're supposed to do. And for example, I've mentioned my gun rider Campbell Williams before. He's got a coach, Ross Beaton, who some people may think is a, a competitor of mine. I don't think like that anymore. He's a, he's a mate of mine, a good mate, and he does a fantastic job with what he's doing in the training program that he's got. And I guess, once again, that's just a growing thing from me and being able to take that on board that he's not so much a competitor, but he can, he can help my rider to go and win races. Mm. And we can work together as a team. Yeah. Is that, is that a tough thing for you as like someone that, that to watch someone almost like find their own feet when you, cause I guess that's the whole idea of what the parents do. They over almost like you care too much and you overdo it. And then when you find that foot, cause that's the thing I struggle with, with these young kids is like, how much do I give you and how much do you need to learn for yourself? Because like you learning it for yourself, that's when it gets cemented in. But I, I just try and drop little bits of knowledge and then you're almost just like, you give them a path, but then they've got to kind of walk down it and that's up to them. But do you find that almost a bit of a struggle sometimes how much to over push or then pull back? And is that something you've just, you've been obviously figuring out more now? I think just like everything else in life, it, it's about balance, right? And I think the more you invest in yourself, whether it's in a team or in a rider or whatever it may be, if you invest so much into a rider and their development and they go from here and end up here, and they yeah. go through all the ups and downs and end up getting a championship at the end of the year, you ride that wave with them. And then when they get that number one plate, it's so, it, it means the world to you. Yeah. I remember over the last few years, I've had some of the girls that have ridden for me, for my team, Tanisha Harnett and Maddie Healy, um, they've both had really successful stints with us and they've both strung together um, unbeaten seasons where they didn't drop a moto. And I must say, they're just state championships. They're not even national championships. But to me, they felt as sweet as any national championship that I ever won myself. Mm. And I think it's because of the wave that you ride with them, the ups and the downs. And it almost feels like a world championship. And, and I honestly feel it's how much you invest of yourself into that process that you, you experience, you know, that excitement and that, you know, that joy when they get mm. the win. You know, it's not just... Mm. It's not just for your sponsors. It's not just to pop a, a picture up on social media or whatever. You're actually over the moon. You're so stoked, you know. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's one of the best feelings out there. No, that's that's really well said. It's funny when like I've I totally find now giving to someone else and seeing them just overwhelmed with joy from achieving something that is almost like you get more from that than you do for yourself. And that's a weird yeah. thing when like you get to that point because then I feel like that's just the gateway to just giving more and helping more. But with that said, did you always feel like, like when did you know you were going to be a coach or when you were going to help? Was this like the start of your career or did you get to a point and you just like, you just feel that you, you felt so strongly about giving back to, to people in like a coaching sense or a team manager or organizing sense? Yeah, I think it was, it was probably, I, I can't even pinpoint a particular time that it happened, but well through the mid stages of my career before I was even close to thinking of retiring, I always had a game plan of doing two things, coaching and commentary. And, and they were going to be, I didn't know what it was going to turn into. I had no idea, but I, I always knew coaching. I loved coaching. And for my last five or six years before I retired, um, I was running regular schools around the place and that always sell out. And, and I had an absolute ball doing it. 
and I knew that there was good money to be made in coaching. Commentary, not so much at the time, but I knew that the two would feed off each other and it would help my profile and I enjoyed it. I loved it. And for my last two or three years of racing, I did a, a, a Supercross-only contract, which enabled me to do the commentary and TV hosting for outdoor motocross. Um, and then after I retired, I was so fortunate for 10 years in a row, I think I was the main host commentator for Supercross. And that was amongst, I think, three or four different promoters. It was a crazy time in our sport where it went from Phil Christensen with Spokes Promotion to, man, that was um, that was the glory days of, of Supercross for us back in the 90s when we were selling out three nights in a row Melbourne Park Tennis Centre. You know, there really? was, wasn't a spare seat in the house. So, um, it went what year was that? Sorry. Is, um, sorry. What year was that? Sorry. So right through the nineties was Christo with, uh, with Phil Christensen and spokes promotions. And, and he, look, he dominated. We, um, we'd have a, a 10, 11, 12 round supercross series that was half outdoors and half indoors so we'd have a couple of nights at Melbourne Park Tennis Centre. We'd be Adelaide Entertainment Centre with another indoor Sydney Entertainment Centre and we'd be up at Boondle in Queensland. So, so many indoors and it took away the risk of getting rained out. We were indoors. It didn't matter. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel with now how the Supercross is going? Because did you, did you go to the Melbourne Supercross? I sure did. I'm the trackside TV host for it. Oh, perfect! Oh, I would have, I would have seen you then for sure. Yeah. I um, sorry. I um, do you go to those now? And obviously, you said like back in the glory days, because that yeah. was obviously a bit before my time. But going to a Supercross like that and seeing, like, I, I was proud to be a part of this industry from going there because I'd been to Supercrosses in America, and then coming there, I was just like, it's it's this is this is it. It's happening, and that's obviously been something you've experienced in the past. So was that just like? I know that you feel like it's it's starting again. It's like the build-up is is happening. Well, it's a um, it's a bit of a weird one because I say the glory days of Supercross in the nineties was when we just consistently week in week out we had Supercross and sold out crowds. Whereas technically, at the moment, we're seeing things. Well, let's scratch COVID for a second because that just friggin' screwed all of us this year. If we forget about that and we look at last year, the year before, I mean, I'm a Melbourne boy. So to have Supercross mm. at Melbourne in that stadium that we did, that was just killer. That's, mm. that's one of the, the best things that I can literally think of in our sport, in our country that's ever happened. But mm. the year before that, the year before that, the year before that, uh, Adam Bailey and Ryan Sanderson, they're two, two really close mates of mine, the promoters of OzX Open and Supercross here in Australia, so right from the get-go, I've been, I started off as one of the TV hosts in the box, doing the TV call. I uh, did that for a couple of years and then I switched down to the trackside because getting to interview the riders and doing the trackside pieces, getting to be able to have my cameraman and be able to grab him and, and pull him over to the whoop section and just go, right, and do a full piece on the whoops and talk through and it's going live to, to you guys in your lounge rooms and be able to explain what's going on with the whoops. Okay, they're getting cupped out here. We've got a low one on the third or the fourth one. That's what's causing everyone dramas. Uh, to be able to talk through that to everyone and explain it, that's just, man, it just doesn't get any better. That's bread and butter for me. And the atmosphere of being down on the track, I just love it. Man. It just It's so much better than being cooped up in some box where you've got a little monitor to look at. 
and we're not allowed to look out the window at the track and see what's going on. We have to look just in this little monitor because that's what the, uh, the guys in their land rooms are looking at at home. So for me to actually be down amongst it, if someone has a crash and they run off the track, I'm ducking and weaving trying to miss people. And then I feel like I'm back on the racetrack again. I was, um, I was actually going to ask that. I was like, how do those feelings compare to when you actually were racing back in the 90s? Oh, it's, um, it's similar. It's very similar. And, and the adrenaline, I still get the adrenaline. I absolutely love it. Uh, but to be able to relate to these guys, and a lot of them I'm really close friends with. But, you know, I'll, I'll get to come up to them on the start line with the cameraman. You know, I'll get, I'll have my headphones on. I'll get told by a producer, okay, we're going to get a grab with Justin Brayton before the second of the finals. He's in a position to possibly wrap the championship up here or whatever. So, I already know as soon as they come across the line and they start lining up, we're heading over to have a chat with Justin Brayton and I'll come over there. He's talking to his mechanic. I've got to try to pick the right time to talk to him where it's not going to annoy him too much. And he, but he knows it's my job. It's part of his role. He knows what's got to be done. Mm. And I've got to get in there, ask him a question, but I can look in his eye and see what's going on. I can feel what he's going through and what he's just about to try to do. And to be able to, pick the right question and ask him and try to get the right answer. Mm. It's such an honor to be able to do that. And, and it, it almost gives you goosebumps to be in that moment, to be able to do it is just, um, it's, it's so good. And I think also with that, he'd know that you've been in that exact same situation. So I think that would almost bring his level of stress down because he, he, he knows that you're going to ask the right questions. He knows that you've been in a situation. He knows what you want. And I guess for you, you know exactly how to treat him as well. I think, when you have people like yourself that have gone stayed in the industry in a different role, I think people really appreciate that because they're like, well, he's done it. He understands. And then it just makes everything flow a lot smoother, which is, it's good to see. Yeah. Um, I think there's two sides to it. There's that, what you just said, but there's also, even if you weren't a rider, I think there's using a bit of logic as well. So if you're <laughs> yeah. speaking to someone and they've just come in and they've got an issue with their bike and they're trying to get something, Something sorted right or they might have just come back from an injury and they might have just had a phenomenal race then but their mm. tongue's in the back sprocket and they're literally trying to get oxygen in so they can just function in the next race mm. they're going to give you some kind of vibe that's either going to say yeah i'm happy to sit here and talk to you for a minute mm. and a half or they're going to basically tell you to piss off <laughs> without saying those words and within yeah. about 20 seconds you're going to go thanks for the chat. Good luck. And you're out of there, you know? Yeah, so yeah. it's really, it's, it's a matter of keeping your brain switched on and picking up what they're putting out to you. And, and quite often they'll give you a really solid idea as to what they want. Mm. Well, that just goes back to being able to read people because I think that's the whole thing when you say the coaching and the commentary go hand in hand, but really it's just communicating with people and getting your point across or seeing their point and understanding and being able to pull back or push forward. So I can see that for sure. Um, with going back with you starting, um, going into coaching while you were still racing, was there a point when you kind of felt the love kind of changing towards coaching or was there a point? Cause you see a lot of, I know motocross, right? Well, pretty much professional athletes and they'll, they won't do that crossover during their career. They'll do it at the end. And I feel like a lot of them will have a stage where they kind of feel like they lose their identity and kind of feel a bit lost. And then they try and find something. But for yourself, you obviously already had this love but you still had a race career. So it was almost like the transition would have been so much smoother. It's a weird one for me. It was a forced retirement, which I 
I still think to this day is one of the best things that have ever happened to me. I had a, um, I was testing for CDA Yamaha for my team over in Adelaide. I was living in Adelaide and on my race bike, I had a throttle jam on me on a jump that was, man, I was up as high as a telegraph pole because this thing just sent me and I ghosted my bike and I landed without my bike on the up face of another jump and totally shattered my foot into, oh man, my heel, the calcaneus bone just looked like paper mache. So for me, I had like four surgeries trying to fix it. So it was, it was a, a forced retirement for me. Mm. And um, I've got to say, it's probably the best thing that happened because when I retired, I was still number two in the country. My last race that I did nationally, I was on the podium in second place alongside Jay Marmont and Troy Doran. So I got to retire still on the podium. And, uh, hey, if I hadn't have retired at that time or I hadn't have had that injury, I wouldn't have met my missus and end up where I am at the moment with, the, the you know, my house and kids. I'd probably still be 48 years old still trying to race these guys, you know. So, um, it, like I said, probably the best thing. And, and for me, uh, what happened was after all these uh, surgeries, I ended up going, you know what? I'm done and I stepped away from the sport for 12 months. I had a good friend who owned a lot of machinery and he let me hop into his excavator and bobcat, which I'd been operating for years anyway, mucking around. Um, And I worked for 12 months. I didn't want to have anything to do with the industry for 12 months. So for all of 2004, I didn't even think about motorbikes. And then come 2005, I went, okay, I'm ready. And I started BCP coaching, my coaching company. And from that moment on, literally in that first year, we did nearly 50 schools and nearly every single one was sold out. And we, yeah, basically it just, it went off crazy. It took off from that. It's funny how you said uh, you went into a forced retirement because of the injury. And now you're saying it's the best thing that ever happened to you. It's kind of a similar situation with the COVID because obviously this year I didn't race. So you could say, semi-forced retirement in a, in a way but again probably best thing I think that could have happened to me I've had like use that time like you said you've met your now wife and I've had this time to I guess learn and grow and experience things that I wouldn't have before but it's funny how you can you can look at that as the worst or the best thing that could have possibly happened to you but obviously what has come of it now and what you can see it's amazing how you can flip that but at the time you probably would have been in the hospital bed sitting there going what's happened to my life it's it's over and then it's funny everything has the opposite to it so it's like you can look at it as bad as something might be you can get the equal positive from it and that's obviously what you've gotten from it but that's really cool to see that you went from that low to then that high. How, how long did that take between that injury to when you felt like you came out of it and kind of realized this might've been for the best? Close to a year. I'm going to say it was a, it was a tough year because I was living in Adelaide and I was working at a, at a motorcycle dealership. I was a, I was a, a bike salesman. I left Victoria, you know, to get away, you know, from, from everything that was going on here. I went to Adelaide and I worked for a, a Yamaha dealership called Yamaha World. And um, it's funny, I, uh, I was allowed to have half a day off Wednesday afternoons and I get to go and practice for Supercross. I, I did a Supercross only contract that year. And uh, that was the only time that I got to ride during the week was Wednesday afternoons. But I ended up winning six or seven Supercrosses that year. It was one of the best years that I ever had. Uh, even Chad Reed come out from America and he was, well, he won a championship that year in America. And uh, 
you know, I, I led him for, for most of the race in Sydney, you know, and I was, I was working full time. Yeah. And uh, it, it's funny because years prior to that, when I was a factory racer back here in Melbourne and riding for some of the biggest factory teams in the, in the country, um, I really didn't make the most of the time that I had. I didn't treat it quite as much of a job as I should have. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I learned from that. And I tell you, when you're working full time and then you have to go and race on the weekend, you appreciate the little hours that you get to go and train. It's funny. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got, a, I've got, I've got a good story. Cause when I first started, um, racing down here, like racing world cups, I was still working a full time job. My dad said, if you're going to do it, I want you to do a trade. So I was doing a boilermakers apprenticeship while I was training. But like you say, the appreciation for it is amazing. Cause I would do a seven hour day welding and then I'd get like, my dad would say, if you, you can finish an hour early, but you've got to go cross country riding or you've got to go to the gym. Like he's like, I'll give you an hour off, but it's got to go into work. And I was so happy to go to the gym. And then like you say, you get the proper ride, you get everything given to you and your appreciation goes down. And I struggled a lot. 2014, I, I no 20, yeah, 2014, 2015, it's it, you kind of get everything like given to you and then you it, everything just becomes i don't know it loses its value loses its appeal in a way and it's it's sad that that happens and i'm just learning now really appreciate what i get to do now and like it's kind of gone full circle again but like you said a training session after a day's work sounds even though you've worked all day sounds a hell of a lot better than it's like you've got to get up and you can do what you want in a way yeah, well, I think it's all, the, the best word I could describe it as is hunger. Like if you could have got some of the footage of me training on those Wednesday afternoons, I had about an hour drive out to Gawler to be able to train on a private supercross track. And I'd give anything to have some of the footage of me training um, during those Wednesday afternoons because I was so hungry, man. I just and, – and some of those rides are still – I can remember how I felt on the bike as opposed to being able to wake up any day of the week and go for a swim, go swim a couple of Ks, go hop on your bike, go have a ride. It, you know, it's, it's not to say that, that that's the only way you can be hungry because I also had a teammate by the name of Chad Reed who, when he was a factory rider, used to get up at about bloody 5 o'clock in the morning – who had more hunger than all of us put together. You know, he'd go and water his his track while the sun hadn't even come up just so that by the time he got on the bike, it was perfect, you know. I just didn't have that hunger during those years as a factory racer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it took me to being a privateer and having to work full-time to appreciate it. And I'm glad I got to go through that. No, that's that's really cool to hear because I definitely had a similar experience. And it's, it's funny how it's just like when you're chasing the car, it's it's just like it's like the dog chasing the car and then you finally catch it and then you kind of sit around and don't know what to do but do you find if you had a bit more structure or like a bit more of a circle or like a coach at that time in your career that would have been a lot obviously a lot different a lot more beneficial um oh how do i explain this i'm just gonna say that perhaps during my racing years i was a bit of a rat bag right (laughs) so um I'm, i'm gonna say that uh what happened was from the moment that I retired, and I mean in all sense of the word, so from the moment that I retired and I started my business, everything has kind of fallen into place and been, I've had continuity, everything's been consistent. I've been with Honda for like, God, 16, 17 years now. I've been with Fox for 22 years. I've been for, with Silkaline for 18 years. 
back in my racing days, there was something wrong if I wasn't changing brand of manufacturer at the end of the year. Like I literally, yeah. I think, I think I've got the, um, the, the title of, of the only person who's ever ridden for every single factory team, every color you can imagine I've ridden for them. What <laughs> was, what, times. what was the biggest reason you think behind the constant change? Was that to do with like, like what you were doing outside of racing or was that just, you just wanted different or to change? There's not one thing in particular that I can put my finger on because it was different things at different times. Sometimes it was, I wasn't happy with the bike. Uh, there were there were a couple of times, and I won't go into detail because I don't want to, you know, start uh, pointing out particular bikes that uh, that I wasn't happy with. But that was a was a factor. Um, a- another one would be, for example, I rode for Factory Honda in 1992, and I had a really really good year. And in hindsight, I should have stayed with Honda, uh, but I I had dollar signs and a big truck and factory team flashed in front of me with Craig Dak wanting to bring me across uh, and I made the move. I won the championship for Dakar in MX1 in his first year as team manager. But then I went back to Honda again in 94 and I won the 500 title for Honda in 94 and had a really good year, got to do the Des Nations in Switzerland. And, and when I think about it, it was the grass is greener syndrome and I really should have stayed with Honda for 93. I would have loved to have got that MX1 title for them. So I can't put my finger on anything in particular other than I was a little bit all over the shop. Um, right. I, I had obviously had a bit of, of talent, but some of those other uh, really important qualities that you need as an athlete, when you look at the the Chad Reeds of the world or in your, in your world, I'm sure you could mention any number of mountain bike guys that they have everything. They've got mm. the skill, they've got the determination, the focus, but the commitment, they'll, they'll sacrifice everything. They've got all of the elements and surprise, surprise, they end up being special, don't they? Mm. You know, I think as a, as a racer, I had some of the elements, but I had quite a few of them that were missing. And for me, I think once I uh, retired from racing and I started business, everything came a lot more um, smoother and flowed a lot better. And I wouldn't change it for the world. If I could swap mm. it around the other way and have had a racing career like business has gone for me, uh, it might have been a little bit more successful, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world because how it's turned out is how it's meant to be. And mm. um, yeah, look, I, there were times where I possibly could have made it to America and tried to go that next level. But for me, it it just wasn't meant to be for a couple of commitment issues. Um, You know, we all make our mistakes and, but I don't regret it in the slightest. Mm. Do you feel, did you, who did you have guidance from with those decisions from moving bike to bike? Was there like for yourself, was there parents or anyone or team managers or who, who was your driving force? Cause I know with myself, like you get a contract thrown at you and you get all these flashy lights and like you say, big truck contract. And it's just, you kind of, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of make a decision in that moment because you're so young and literally it's like you say, flashing lights and all this stuff. And you're like, which way do I kind of fall? Did you feel like there was a lack of guidance there for you? No, I, I think um, my parents probably, they'd give me their opinions, but at the end of the day, it was up to me uh, to make the decision. And, uh, yeah, look, I, I think they, they did their best with me. I, I think 
if I was going to point the finger rather than saying a lack of guidance from my parents, I, I'm going to say that it was more, uh, more me being a little bit hard to guide in the right direction, shall we say. Yeah. So, uh, so possibly I was, I was given, I was given certain ideas, but I was pretty headstrong in my way of, uh, of dealing with certain situations. Um, a lot of the time, I mean, I, I had a, I had a really good run. So I changed, I changed, companies or brands that I was writing for a lot of the time but I had a period of 10 or 11 years where I wasn't out of the top two in the country I was either number one or two yeah so I had a good run from that side of things it's just that the me that I am today and the sponsors I hate I don't care what brand I'm with. I hate changing sponsors. It kills me. It kills me to lose a sponsor and to move on to a different brand. Uh, I was with Dunlop Tires for 18 years. And, you know, for, for various reasons, I shifted to Michelin two and a half years ago. And that, you know, that was a, a hard choice to make. And I had my own reasons for doing that. But it kills me to have to change sponsors. Whereas back then, it was like pulling a tear off, off you know. Like, yeah. it, was, it was no drama. Um I've got to say, I'm happy I, I eventually evolved into a, you know, more responsible person. But yeah, it was, um, yeah, I look at, I look at riders such as Jay Marmont in our sport who had a bit of a dynasty with Yamaha, right? He did, he won four back-to-back championships for them and he had one year on Kawasaki, but he, he just stuck with that brand the whole time. And I'm sure you've got people that you can relate to that have stuck with a certain bicycle brand or manufacturer or whatever it is. Mm. I just didn't have that during my racing career, unfortunately. Because you definitely become, after obviously like 18 years, you become like it's almost family. And it's one of those things. It's like once you get connected to that family, that will make you race better because you have such a good relationship with everyone on board. And I guess when you say when you were younger and you were jumping around, do you just feel like you you just... Like I say, you said, like you said, you're unguiding unguiding or whatever. I can see the same thing because I was similar, like with flashy lights, and you you don't you don't feel that connection properly. And then looking back, you see like how good something was because like I've I've left teams which it's heartbreaking because you know what like those times you had and to a certain point it becomes more than yeah this is a race team like no this is this is pretty much family to that point and then there is certain parts where you think it will become. It's, it's more beneficial to you and for your future. And, and it sucks that that hurts people, but it is a part of it. But like you said, now, if you can keep a relationship with the sponsor and go back to them and ask, what can I do for you? Not just take and like give back. I think if you can have that, you can have, like you say, 22 year relationships with sponsors and then build from that. But you see, as a young kid, I think it's more take, 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 and then almost just leave. And it's something that, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to do in such a small industry as well, because it's just, we're all so connected with everything. Yeah. <clears throat> True. It's it's funny, and I say I, I've swapped manufacturers a lot, but I guess to tell the whole story, um, in 1983, my first year of racing as a junior. How old were you? 83. 83. I wasn't born in 83. There you go. There you uh, go. So, I'm a 95 so, <laughs> model. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So sorry, I'm showing my age right here. So 1983, my first year. Of, um, of racing juniors, uh, I, I shouldn't have. I was lucky because the, the kid that should have won, Rodney Hamilton, absolute superstar, he snapped a chain. Um, but I was lucky and I won a national championship, a national junior title in my first year of racing. I was on a Yamaha. 
the next year I got signed by Team Kawasaki. They signed me. And from 1984, 85, 86, 87, I did my whole junior career on Kawasaki. 98, 90, uh, 89 and 1990, I was still factory Kawasaki. 1990, I was just a young, grommy, 17-year-old in seniors racing against Craig Dack, Lynn Bell, all those guys. Um, and I won the first round of Mr. Motocross. I was the youngest rider uh, to ever win a round of Mr. Motocross. The following year in 91, I didn't have the best year, but I got sacked by, by Kawasaki because they reckoned that I couldn't ride Supercross. And I'd had, God, I don't know, I don't even want to count those years. So there's a, a, a lot of years that I rode for Kawasaki through my whole junior career. I won seven national championships for them. Did pretty good in Mr. Motocross. I got I got fourth against all those guys as a as a rookie, and uh, and then I got sacked by Kawasaki. My dad and I went and bought a Honda off uh, the showroom floor from a dealership in Frankston, um, and I went and raced the Supercross the next weekend. And I got second to Craig Dark and reeled him in from about ten seconds back and nearly won. So I wanted to show Kawasaki that I could actually race. Uh, Supercross and then went and won uh, a Supercross championship not long after that. So, so I don't know, perhaps there was a bit of spite there with Kawasaki for sacking me after all those years for not being able to race Supercross. You reckon it's funny how you had that little chip on your shoulder and you say like when you worked a full-time job and then came back or like you just want to prove a point. It's funny how that chip can like, obviously it motivates you. It does a similar thing to me. If you say you can't do something or you kind of, it's, it's funny. It's, it's like you, you give someone everything and they kind of try. It's like you give someone nothing and they're kind of like, I'll show you. But how good was that feeling to come back and then win after, after kind of being sacked and just going through that? That was pretty cool. That was, <laughs> it was really cool to actually, for my dad and I to go halves um, in, in that Honda and we paid, you know, we bought that bike from Top Gear Motorcycles in Frankston and halfway through the year with our results, I got recruited onto the factory Honda team and got a heap of bikes thrown at me. So, um, you know, and then, then so we were talking 92 then and not long after that, Craig Dack signed me for the number one spot of the biggest team in the country. So everything turned around so rapidly um, in, in such a short period of time. So it's all part of the, all part of the big story, yeah. Mm. Now that's that's cool to like to hear you had the same experience with like almost needing that chip or needing that struggle because I think with a lot of things like when someone's given everything like you see you're kind of a, a prodigy coming up and they're kind of handed a silver platter of everything and then it goes wrong and you see them they're done and I think you see that a lot in in motocross in America when you see like an up-and-coming rider and he's the next big thing and then they get an injury and then they kind of just drop off the face of the earth but it's definitely cool to see when they kind of actually go through that struggle and then it grows them. And then obviously like yourself, you could win a championship after doing that. Cause I, I see with younger riders, it's, it's that balance between you want them to struggle because you want them to learn from that struggle, but also you don't want to see them struggle. And I'm sure that would be a challenge for even like a father to see their kids. You want them to go through that struggle, but at the same time you want them to, um, you want to give the best for them and you want to do everything for them. So it's that balance. And like you said before, balance in life, it's just like, how do you reckon you balance that with either your kids at home or even athletes on the team? It's difficult because it comes down to personality. And, and it's, it's funny. I was just talking about this the other day. Um, I've got a, there's a kid that's a few years older than my boy Noah that races BMX and he's multi-time national champion. So he's got number one plate after number one plate hanging up on the wall. He's an absolute gun. 
but he suffers that much from anxiety that he gets to races sometimes and he doesn't even want to race. He gets that nervous. And um, I, I kind of find that hard to comprehend. So for, for me, as a junior, even what, especially once I turned senior, if I was winning and I had the number one plate, the number one plate, instead of feeling like a target on the back, it was kind of like a puff your chest out and, and, and mm. you know, kind of like... It, it added confidence to you, yeah. and and, uh, and I really found it hard to comprehend how that number one played. And when you're so good, if you watch this kid, he's he dominates. He's a machine, right? And um, and and to just try to understand and get into his mindset, how the number one plate and being that good can make you that nervous that you don't even want to race. I just couldn't understand that, and that just goes to show how differently we're all wired and how we react to different situations. And I come across that every single year. I have three or four different riders on the team. You times that by five or six years. I've had so many different riders come through my system and every single rider has a different way of dealing with pressure. Some people will look like they're absolutely fine, but inside they're crumbling. They're just, they're no good whatsoever, right? Other people, I had one rider in particular who would look like they were really nervous, but the moment the gate dropped, they were a warrior, the absolute warrior. And getting to learn your riders and how they react in different situations, the mind is is such a crazy thing. It's the the main factor in any sport. Mm. Because that's something I've been trying to work out with these kids that I'm helping now because obviously everyone's got their own personality, but it's yeah, really trying to read when to push. And do you find as well with the kids using each other, not like against each other, but using them to kind of build off each other? Because I look at that now, it's like that bit of friendly competition and you look someone like um, Alden Baker, how he gets the 250s or up the 450s and it's that like younger person almost chasing the older person. Do you, do you try and use that within the, within the team as like, knowing when who to like put with each other and how to train together and like using each other as their best kind of weapon because you see so many top guys and they've almost say nemesis or rival or whatever but they're they're where they are because of the other person i'm sure you've got people like you said chad Chad reed or they're, they're as good as they are because of you and you're as good as them because you're as good as you are because of them. And it's, it's really cool to see, and especially if you have a training program, you can put those kids together and just like watch them both excel like quicker than you would have ever hoped. Yeah, it's, um, it's such a juggling act. And that's the funny thing is every single rider is different. And that's what I've found is that certain riders, you need to say to them, mate, that was really, really good. But maybe can you, please try this. You know, you need to tiptoe around the subject. Uh, if you say, no, you need to work on this, all of a sudden the bottom lip's on the ground, we've got dramas, they're not going to hear the next word that comes out of your mouth. Uh, th- then you've got other writers who you can just come straight in and go, dude, what was that, man? You're better than that. Come on, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they respond to that. And if you try to tiptoe around it and go, no, that was, that was pretty good. They'll look at you and go, no, it wasn't. You know, what are you talking about? So, so just like a riding school where you can have a kid that you're trying to teach and you can try this way and it doesn't work and you're pulling your hair out and you go, all right, I'm going to try this way. And then that doesn't work. So you, you try another way. I think one of the art forms of being a good coach is not just being 
you know, set in your way of doing it. If you try to coach the right way, you're going to leave at the end of the day and you're going to be ready for a straitjacket. You're going to be that tired, right? Try, try to read students and getting the best out of them because mm. every single one is totally different. And I'm sure every single coach out there can relate to what I'm talking about. We're trying to get the best out of their riders and trying to get them to respond and pick up what you're talking about. Mm. And that's what I find with my junior team riders they're all totally different and trying to get the best out of them. You need them to, to not spit the dummy, not, not uh, crack the shits with you and not listen to you. You need them to take on board information. And, oh man, that's, that's the trickiest part of it for sure. Mm. Cause that's like when we were talking about the other day, you've got to really pick your words, what to say. And when we went into the whole meditation thing and you, you say meditation to a, anyone under probably the age of 18 or 19, I guess they have this preconceived notion of like, what are you talking about? You're going to get the chimes out and start humming and get the, get the Buddha out and whatnot. So I think, like you said, you can't say meditation because they straight away, the lights just go off, but you've found ways around that by talking about focus and, and other things you do. But what were some of those things you, you focus on with younger kids with trying to get them to meditate without actually telling them that's meditation? Oh, Look, I think it's 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 more about concentration skills, you know. Look, I, I think with all of my riders, I try to give them certain exercises that works on concentration and trying to get them to focus. And like you and I spoke on the phone about, one of the things that I get just about all my riders to do is to kneel on an exercise ball, put a little five-cent coin down in front, look at that five-cent piece and see how long you can stare at that without losing balance and without letting other thoughts come in and out of your head now concentration is one of the most important things as you know as an athlete uh, i've had so many athletes that i've trained since i retired a really good mate of mine was just hurt himself recently shane boyd he's one of my closest mates um he had a near-death experience he nearly passed away um thank god he's, he's still with us and he's doing okay um he's one of the best motocross riders we've ever had here in the country but during his peak of his career, he'd always get to about that 25, 20, 25-minute mark of a 35-minute moto, and he'd have a little crash, and he'd probably be about 10 seconds in the lead of the best riders in the country. Now, it wasn't because he wasn't fit enough, because he's fit enough to do about 45 minutes flat out. It was purely because he'd have a little brain fart and he'd have a crash. And part of me trying to help him and fix him was trying to get that concentration level to that point of where he wouldn't get to 20, 25 minutes. And then all of a sudden the brain would switch off because if you're not concentrating, it doesn't matter how fit your body is. If your, if your mind's not concentrating, that's when you're going to make mistakes. So for me, it's a little bit different for the junior team because we only have 10 or 15 minute races, but I'll tell you what, you can see all kinds of concentration issues <laughs> with 10 or 15 minutes as well. So, yeah, look, you're exactly right. I'm trying to get the point across to them. For me personally, um, it, it's just about trying to get them to channel their focus into one thing and to be able to keep focused on that without worrying about all the external factors that are going on. Now, whether you call that meditation or you call that focus training or you call that concentration, it comes under a bunch of subheadings, I guess. Um, it's all the same thing, you know, it's all about being able to concentrate and being able to, you know, use your, use your brain for what it's meant for. 
Is that something that you found came easy for you? Because you were saying before how you felt like you're a really smooth calculated rider. Was that something you just had or was that something you kind of taught yourself? Um, good question. I'm going to say sometimes I'm, I'm able to be able to channel my focus onto one thing when, when needs be. Uh, and, and I still, to this day, even I, I, I love riding, I love riding my motocross bike and I love riding my mountain bike and I, I love, um, scaring myself a little bit. Almost every day I try to do something that gives me a bit of a scare, whether it's, you know, heading down to some of our biggest, you know, road gaps that we've got in the area or whatever it may be, doing new things that I haven't done before. And um, I find that I'm not, I don't feel alive unless I'm putting myself in, in that zone. Yeah. And, and still at this silly age that I'm at to be doing that, um, I, I, uh, I love getting into that zone of concentration where you're just that focused. Mm. It's my way. I get asked nearly every week to come back and do a race. It's still all my mates every week. They're asking me to come and race mountain bikes next year, whether it's in the e-bike class or whatever. And I'm like, no, I retired in 2003 and I meant it. And they're like, come on, just do it for fun. And I'm like, well, no, because for me, I'll take it too serious and then it won't be fun. <laughs> and, then, and, and so they're always asking me to come back and do that. So. I always wonder that because I know with my mindset as a racer, it's going to be hard to come back in a race environment and say, take it easy. Because a lot of time when you take it easy, that could almost be when you make the mistake, when you're out of that race focus. But like you say, like when you get in that zone and nothing else matters, when you can shut off every other thing and you're in this one, whether it be 30 minutes or two minutes or however long it is, but if you can get in that mindset for even any point of time, like I remember my world's champs run last year, I like I can't, it's, you can't even explain the feelings you have and like to, to get everything you have and for it to be working is just like this overwhelming feeling of just like, it's just everything you've worked towards and to keep that focus. But it's something I struggle with as well. And I need to work on because like you said, the juniors do 10 to 15 minutes. We, we do three minutes and we need that hyper focus as well. So I can understand like it doesn't, the time thing doesn't matter, but if you can find that, that zone, whether it be three minutes, 15, 10 minutes or 30, it's, it's something pretty incredible. But do you, besides the coin thing, did you have anything back when you were, when you were racing to try and help with your focus, whether it was like longer motos or was it certain um, exercises or anything you did? Um, look, I, I had some concentration exercises that I did for sure uh, that, that helped me. And I had a trainer that gave me multiple concentration exercises and that really, that really helped. I found the brain, it's just, like a, it's just like any other muscle in the body, worked exceptionally well. Really late in my career, um, I, uh, I managed to come across, and, and uh, I, I come across um, a, a writer in America who um, got me into trying meditation. And uh, at first, it was a, I didn't quite understand it. And I, I, I attempted it. And, you know, you sit there, you close your eyes, you try to focus on one thing. And just like anyone else, you have a million thoughts sort of going through your head. Um, but being able to quiet your mind down and stop everything from coming in, um, it, it, really, it, it really helps the nerves. And I had a couple of supercrosses that come to mind, particularly indoor supercrosses where I found if I could somehow calm my mind down to the point of where you're sitting on the start gate, and, you know, you've got seven riders either side of you and you're looking into a first turn that's only about 30, 40 metres down that way. You can almost touch it. It's so intense. It's like you're going to war. Uh, and it's really natural to sit on the start line and to have 
adrenaline and butterflies and all kinds of stuff going on. And, and um, for, for me, if I could calm myself down and get myself to the point of where I didn't want to look, you know, left or right, look at my competitors. I was just looking at the first turn and I was ready to go into battle. I was ready to go into war. And, uh, you know, you feel like your heart rate's lower and you're a lot calmer and then you make better decisions. You've still got adrenaline going. You're still ready to go, but you don't get to the point of where your nerves have risen to the point of where they rule what's going on. And it mm. also, it's almost like it clouds your judgment. I'm sure most people out there that are listening, um, they've all been some kind of circumstance where the nerves have got the better of them. Anxiety, it, it can lock you up and make you go worse, but we all need a certain amount of adrenaline and energy to get out there and perform at our best. If we're mm. if you're sitting at the top of a downhill run about to go and your heart rate's about 52 or something and you're just sitting there just chill looking around, you're probably not going to have the best run, you know. So you, you need a certain element of adrenaline ready to kick you into gear, but you don't want to let it, you know, rule mm. you and make you cloudy and lock you up. Mm. Well, I think that would be like, you've obviously, I'd say you would have had a moto win or just a really good race where you'll finish and you won't be out of breath. You won't be tired. Your arms won't be pumped up. And it's almost like winning's the easiest thing you've ever done. And it's like what people say to me, it's like, it'll be really, really hard until it's not. And then it's easy. And it's just when everything falls into place, when your breathing's right, when your focus is right, when the bike's right and everything works together, it's like, people have said that when they've won, they doesn't feel like they've won because everything was just effortless. And I was going to say, did you have those experiences when you kind of found that focus that you were working on towards the end? Did you just finish a race and be like, Oh, like it just seemed easy to you almost. Yeah, I did. And I think the easiest way to explain it is um, when you're in that zone and you know what I'm talking about. Anyone, anyone out there would know. Now, it doesn't need to be, you know, motorsport or, or, or anything to do with two wheels. It could be, I'll go back to a footy player. It could be, you know, a midfielder playing football and they might be having a game where everything they touch turns to gold. They, they take a step this way and it's like people move out of the way at, for them and they're, they're finding paths to go through. And it's almost like someone's hit the slow motion button because everything slows down. Of course, it doesn't slow down. It's going in the same speed. But yeah. for you, it's like you've got more time to make a decision. Whereas then on the complete other side of it, when you're having a bad day, it's like someone's pushed the fast forward button, right? You're not going any faster than you normally do. But it seems like everything's coming up at you at a million miles an hour. If someone has a crash in front of you, you are definitely going to hit them and go down because there's no way you're going to be able to get away out of the way in time or whatever. So for me, I found when I was at my best and I was concentrating and I was in the zone, as you called it, in the zone, you're flying around the track, but it's like someone's pushed the slow motion button because it's like you've got a little bit of extra time to make decisions, to pick your lines. You can almost look ahead and some lapped rider's just blown out the outside berm in the next corner, but you spot it from a mile away and take a different line and everything's cool, you know? If everything's not going good, sure enough, you're going to push your front wheel through the top of that and you're going to go down in that corner. So we've all been there, mate. You have times where you're... You just, everything's just clicking. And then you have times where everything you touch turns to shit. So yeah, yeah we've been there as well. So yeah, like I say, it's almost like you're getting in that flow state, which is like what people chase. Do you feel like, did you, 
because obviously confidence plays such a major part in that. And I felt when you did get in those states, were you just like just overwhelmingly confident about like your ability or did you have like a race win? Like what built you into that? Because I know with our sport, it's like once you get momentum, which any sport really, once you get that momentum, it just, like I said, becomes easy and you can find that flow state because the confidence builds more confidence and it's kind of like you become like a unstoppable object in a way. And it's funny because you see it um, like with hurlings or someone like that or in our sport, like Bruni, like they'll win one and then they just can't stop winning. And it's just like, how do you obtain that and then, and then carry that on? Yeah, I was, um, I was a particular type of rider that rode on confidence. When I was up, I was up. And when I was down, I was terrible. So, and if you looked at my track record, what you'd see is I'd come out and I'd win a Supercross and then I'd win like three or four in a row. And then something would go pear-shaped and I'd have a bad one and then I'd be down for a little bit. So I'd kind of ride the wave of whatever I was on, but definitely I was that rider you're talking about. When I'm up, um, it would it'd almost like ooze out of me, uh, my confidence. And I'm not saying it was a good thing. I was a, a cocky bastard, you know, and I, um, I don't really know if I would change it if I could because that was just me as a, as a racer. Um, but, but, yeah, when I was up, I was up. And when I was down... Yeah, I was terrible, <laughs> you know, and then I'd have to try to get myself back up again. But, you know, some of my best mates, um, I, I get along really well with him. Craig Anderson, he's one of the best riders we've ever had in Australia. And, man, he won some championships. And, you know, if you're comparing apples with apples, he won a lot more than what I did. But we quite often have conversations, you know, where he'd just say, yeah, you know, I might have I won more than you, Hoax, but when, when you were up, when you were on your game, damn, you know, I knew I had a, a few consecutive races where I was going to be struggling kind of thing. So, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of proud of that, that when I was up, I was up, but I, I really wish I, I could have been able to pick myself up a little bit quicker when I was down for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel, I feel that for sure. Like you definitely can read into emotions, good and bad way too much sometimes. But with that, did you have a certain race that stands out in your mind? Like you mentioned as nations before, was that, was one of them or like a race in Australia? Or like, is there one that stands out in your mind for like finding that flow state and really being in it? Um, yeah, look, I had one in particular where um, the Melbourne Park Tennis Centre where I, I must say it was, uh, it was 2002. It was the year that I was racing uh, and I was working full-time for Yamaha World in Adelaide. And I'd come over and... Uh, Look, I've won a few indoors over the years, a handful, probably five or six indoors. But, man, we used to race six or seven every year, you know. So in the big scheme of things, I didn't win enough indoors to what I probably should have. Uh, But this particular one was just a night uh, that's in my memory books as probably my best ever race of my whole career. And um, I just, I, I remember just being that focused that, uh, every single qualifying heat, every semi, um, a whole shot, and I led every single lap of the whole night. In the main event, a whole shot, there was a big first-turn pile-up, and they called us back to the start line, and I was still super calm. Everything was just really relaxed, and I whole shot the restart and led all 20 laps and, and won by a big margin. And whatever the heck I did that night, I wish I could, um, I wish I could bottle that and have done that many times, but... I, uh, I, I, I seriously 
uh, put it down to being able to, you know, I, I, I managed to find my own little space prior to the main event. I just went into, uh, like anyone that's been in the, the Melbourne Tennis Centre before would know there's all halls and different things from if they've got, you know, rock stars or, or singers that come in, they've got their own little change rooms and stuff. And in every change room is toilets and showers and stuff. And I remember before the main event going, locking myself in the, in the, uh, the shower bathroom of one of these and closed the door and just sat there in the pitch black for like half an hour. And I waited until my mechanic come and grabbed me uh, when we were about to go up into pre-grid for the main event. And I was so relaxed by the time we come out and did our parade lap and, you know, and the, the crowd's going crazy and um, I just, I can still remember everything. I remember lining up in that main event, sitting on the start gate. I remember I had uh, had grid number four. I had first pick of the grid for the main event and I picked grid number four, which I believed was perfect for sweeping into that first turn. And um, like I said, it was like everything was in slow motion, you know, from the drop of the gate, um, you know, we had a bike length on everyone and, and uh, it was all, all, all went like clockwork. Do you feel like why like you're in the gate, you almost know, like you almost know you've won or you almost, even I have a thing when I race and I'll be in the start gate and I'm just, sometimes I'll just be super happy and I'll be that happy where I don't care if I get a flat or I crash because I kind of, I just soak in the moment of what I'm doing or where I am. Like I had one really profound moment when I was in Switzerland, I was in the start gate and I kind of just looked around and I'm just like, I'm about to race my bike in front of the world in this amazing place on an amazing team. And there's all these good experiences and like led to that moment. I was like, the rest is just a bonus. Like this, like up until that point, I have won. I have won every, every race you could say until that moment. And I was like, everything else after this is just extra. So, and I always do well, if I can get myself in that headspace, like you obviously did in the shower where you've won the race before you've done it. And then it's just like, everything else is a bonus. And because of that, you're not riding tight. You're not riding nervous. You just, it's just fun. It's like you're doing exactly what you want to do, exactly where you want to be, and everything just becomes exactly what it should be. And that's obviously what you found that night, which is cool, cool to hear. Yeah, it was. Um, everything came together. And I also remember it was funny, leading up to that race, um, back in Adelaide doing my training, I must have done 300 practice starts on my practice bike just because indoor supercross is all about starts if you get a good start and you're riding good no one's passing you you get an eight thousand dollars for the win you go home a happy guy so i practiced so many starts and i reckon i went through two or three clutches in my practice bike just practicing starts leading up for that and i came up with this brainwave of you know the grip tapes like sandpaper that they put uh, on on skateboards i uh, i got some of that clear stuff and I managed to put it from the top of my bike all the way down through where your legs grip when you're doing a start. And uh, my legs, I would grip that hard onto this sandpaper. And when I dumped the clutch to take off, the lower half of my body wouldn't even move a centimetre. I just locked in. So my drive was just incredible. We'd just take off and we were gone. But um, I'd go through a set of fox pants every single race right so so i wasn't real uh i wasn't the the best person in the eyes of my um my sponsors at fox at the time but i think in hindsight when when we got the win that night i think uh i think it's worth those few sets of pants that we went through was that um was that your idea to put the tape on or did someone else come to you with that 
It was all my idea. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say no goggles, tape on the bike. I was like, what the fuck's Lee doing? But <laughs> you've got some little trick, <laughs> tricks up your, up your sleeve. Now, that's cool though, but that's those one percenters that I think people don't realize that can play such an important role in anything. But it's just like you, if your brain's working that way that you can see an advantage in anything. And that's, that's something that's really cool to see in an athlete where they're not just going along the path that everyone else is and they kind of look outside the box. But do you feel like you've always done that? You've always kind of been outside the box in ways like that? Not always. I think in racing and in business, every now and then you come up with little one percenters where you think outside of the box and, and they're absolute gold and you wish you could come up with one every year, you know, but it, you, it's not possible. You know, like with, with my riding schools, I came up with the five day boot camp program, which we had four different tracks and then we'd do a fitness boot camp on the fifth day and no one had ever done it before. And the moment that I come up with that, it was just like, it was just a, a license to print money almost. It was just no one else was doing it and everyone wanted to come along. We'd do a riding school. Are you kidding me? Four days, four different tracks. And then we get to do a fitness boot camp. Like a, so, and then I, I can still remember going on holidays, you know, a year or two after I come up with that business model of my five day boot camps. I, I remember lying on a, on a sunbed in Hawaii next to my missus by the pool and just lying there and just thinking, please, come on, another another idea like that. You know, like I want another five-day boot camp idea. Yeah. It didn't come to me. And uh, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, they're the kind of things that um, you know, you gotta you always gotta be searching for those kind of things that separate you from everyone else. Yeah. Uh, and hey, they don't come along all the time, but when they do, they're special. Mm. Well, going back to your schools then, so when when was that like when did that kick off obviously you said you were doing coaching during your racing career and then you've kind of slowly gone out of that and then you've just really just gone 100% to the coaching how was that starting off and like even with getting more coaches involved and how that's kind of progressed now because you were saying before on the phone the other day that you kind of pick and choose what you want to do now and you've obviously picked people that run what you used to obviously not micromanage but used to manage more of it how is it now with picking those coaches and then how, like what role do you play in the schools? Yeah. Um, look, I'm, I'm super lucky. I've got some great coaches working for me now. I've got Danny Ham uh, and Brad Matheson, Bailey Davies in Tasmania. Um, I've got some really good coaches that are doing their thing and they put out some really good numbers with schools. They, they do a lot of schools and they're younger and hungrier and they go and get amongst it. And that kind of allows me to step back a little bit and not feel as if I have to do what I used to, which is every weekend, school after school after school. I, um, I love coaching. It's, I think for me and my boys, will. Uh, I, I know a lot of my, my close mates that I ride mountain bikes with uh, will be watching this and they'll be laughing at the moment because we can be up at, you know, at our local place that we ride at and I'll take it upon myself to try to tow in. You know, I reckon I've got 20 people over our local road gap down near where we are. And uh, I, just, I just love helping people and taking them through the process of, okay, no brakes, no pedals, just rolling. This is, I just love, absolutely love coaching. Um, and the, the boys will be having a bit of a laugh about it. But, um, but mate, I've got to say that 
it kind of, it's draining. And I'm sure you must admit with your coaching that you've done, hey, you're a heck of a lot younger than me, but you, you must admit it drains you to coach properly mm. and to really put everything you can into a riding school where you've got 30 riders and you need to split the group. This group's going here. You've got an assistant mm. coach. You're taking this group here and you need to try to get everyone up to a certain level and you need to put 100% in. It's so, so mentally draining. Mm. And I just don't have it in me to do it. You know, I don't have it in me to do 100 schools a year anymore. Mm. So f- to get the best out of me so that I can be the best I can be to, to my students, I'd rather hand select X amount of schools that I do and, um, and just put everything I have into them. And then have my other guys that have been through my program, they coach the same way as I do. You know, they've been, um, you know, through my system for so many years that they can almost recite word for word my talk on how to do a rut or how to do a flat corner or concrete starts or dirt starts, whatever it may be. Um, and, I, and I trust in their, their process and that they run things the same as that I do. Mm. And um, that makes my life a heck of a lot easier. No, I, I totally understand that when you say it's draining because I think it's just as much as you're putting into it, like that's taking so much from you. And like you said, especially I've, I've never coached like 30, like that's, that's way outside of what I've ever done. But even with just say three or four kids, it's good because you can put so much knowledge into them and it's, it's, I think it's received a lot better. It's not so broken up with 30 kids, but like you say, it's, it, it zaps you of energy because you've got to engage with those kids as, and fully engage with them and, and not just engage with them, but realize the information you're giving them being well received and actually learning from that. But that's the thing I've battled with when you've said you were coaching and racing and I am trying to do both right now, but at the same time, I don't want to, cause I know there's benefits. Like I'll tell, um, just say for example, Ollie Davis, how to do something. And then I'll think to myself, I'm like, Oh shit. I should actually be doing that. And it kind of makes you check yourself to a certain level, which then obviously helps me. But then it's sometimes like you put so much in and you're just like, oh, like when do you take that step back and go, I'm still a racer. I need to like put energy into myself as well. So is that, again, balance of how you play it all. But I just thought it was real fascinating to hear someone that was still racing why they started coaching because that's kind of the point where I'm at now where I want to put a lot of energy into it, but I want to keep that balance of not using all my energy up. Well, that's a tough one, and you only you'll know that when you get to that point as to as to how much energy you've got and how much you want to do it. And then, as other avenues open up, and you decide what you want to do. But a, a, a point um, you just made then about uh, about when you're coaching and you focus so much on your technique. It's funny. One of my uh, one of my coaches, Brad Matheson, is a great rider, multi-time champion, and, and a really good coach. When I first started, when I first brought him across from being a student to being one of my assistant coaches, and then I stepped him up a level again and used him for demos every now and then in front of a group of 30 people, you'd have to go and do a demo. Now, anyone that's done that before, the the pressure that's on you when you've got 30 people sitting there and you might be able to do that rut 10 times in a row perfect. But when you've had your head coach do a big talk and go, all right, now Matho's going to go do this. Let's watch him do it. And we're all standing there. We're watching him. And then the pressure to do that is immense, you know. And, and to chat with Matho about it and to hear him say, it's funny, the more schools you do and the more drills where you have to talk it through and then you have to do a demo, it really hammers home 
you know, it, how important it is, the technique, and it make it forces you into into doing it how you say. Mm. And it, it's quite a cool thing. Well, that just comes back to that focus thing we were saying before, because it's just like you can do that rut a hundred times perfect, and then as soon as you put thirty eyes on you everything changes, but it's like you should, you, you need to block those 30 people out and, and focus on the rut. And that's obviously the same with racing. What did you ever, have you ever done that, but then put a student in like, just had like one of your junior kids and just been like explaining a rut and then just pick someone out and be like, okay, do it. And do you see, yep. you notice the difference? Yeah, I have. I've, I've noticed that a couple of times every now and then what I've done at a couple of schools is we might be doing, and, and once again, I'll use a rut as an example because, as you know, I've seen you on the moto. You get around all right, mate. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, ruts are one of the hardest things that we have to do on a motocross bike. And, and to be able to rail a rut and have your spot-on technique where you're pointing your toe, your foot's dragging across the top, it's like poetry in motion. And so we'll watch a full rut drill and at the very end, I'll extract three riders from the group that have been the absolute best. And then everyone else has to sit on the side. And out of those three riders, they get to line up and they get two goes at it. And out of those two goes, we're going to pick the number one. So they can stuff it up once. But if they nail the next one, they've got the overall win. <laughs> and the amount of times that you'll see kids just nailing it time and time again, perfect. But as soon as it comes down to the final, you got two goes and it just, man, the people high side and dabbing their foot in the ground and things going wrong. When you have to perform under pressure, it just adds a totally different element to it. And then, yeah. hey, I've got to say as well, sometimes you have someone that will just kill it. Pressure makes diamonds, doesn't it? You know, sometimes you'll have someone that will just rise to the occasion. Mm. And then quite often I'd have a video of that and I'll pop it up on Insta for them and give them a little bit of a uh, bit of a shout out. It's funny how you say that because I think that just separates the um, a racer from a good rider. And that's something I've always felt. I always call myself a B-grade rider, but I'm an A-plus racer. And I don't know why it was, but I literally would get to the track and there'd be bunting on the side of the track and there'd be people and there'd be whistles and my brain would just switch to race mode. And I just write, I, I can't explain it. And I'm sure you'd ha- you'd probably be a similar thing where you go to the practice track and you'd be riding and like, you don't feel bad or anything, but then you put the crowd there, you put the lights, you put everything else and you just elevate to this level. And it's, I don't think, I think that's something really hard to train. And that's the, the thing that I feel like I've just kind of always had that, it's almost just like a bit of dog in you that can just lift that game and push that bit harder. But it's trying to, I guess, yeah, train that into someone and, and doing those things where you put three riders against each other and then like seeing like that diamond in the rough kind of thing. But was that something you just felt like you always kind of had or did you, did you really have to work on that? Um, yeah, look, I, I think back to my early team Honda days where I had the same teammate, um, quite often for, for a few years in a row. And, um, and and my teammate would quite often, nearly every midweek training session would be a little bit faster than me. But then on the weekends, I'd always be one or two positions ahead of him. And I ended up, you know, like he, he ended up winning one or two championships. But, you know, nine times out of 10, I'd be just that couple of spots above him in just about every race. But midweek, and it would just frustrate the absolute shit out of him that, he, he had me midweek and it's not like I wasn't trying, like I was yeah. trying my best, but yeah, you, you're exactly right. Come the weekend when it comes time to race, there's a lot of other factors that come into it. Yeah. Mm. I feel like it comes back to that confidence because I know 
in 2019, I started going to races and I might have had a shitty practice or I might have had a shitty qualifying run. And I had this confidence going into finals because I just had like told myself that I'm like, oh, it's fine. You'll, you'll turn around. Like you'll do it. And I truly believe that. And then you go in with that confidence of like, oh, okay, I might have had a shitty practice this morning or I might have whatever. But once you have that confidence when you're like, I know the lights are on, it's go time, you can you can pull it out of your hat. But yeah, that would have that would have been a pretty shit for old mate, just <laughs> chipping away. Because I guess like, what do you do? Like, you are faster than you. We're like, and then it's just like, how do you get that? I guess, and that probably would have put more pressure on him because then he would have been playing mind games with himself, saying well, like, why, why can't I, why can I beat you here and not here? And I guess that probably emphasizes even worse when he should be doing the opposite, I guess, and just trying to like not think about it. But as a racer, it's so hard to actually actually change your mind to that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's probably more a common thing to be a good rider and not necessarily a good racer. I think there's a lot more good riders out there. So it's probably more a common thing. Mm. Um, whereas, I, yeah, I think the elements that need to be brought into being a good racer, um, I think is a little bit more rare. And it comes back to dealing with pressure and, and mm. allowing yourself to rise to the occasion and being able to channel your focus, all those things that you mentioned. Mm. But there's certain elements on race day that make certain people go tiny little bit better, and then there's certain things on race day that make that particular person go better that will make someone else go not quite as good. It'll lock yeah. them up a little bit. Yeah. And it's funny how it works. You know, it's, um, it's crazy. And if you could answer that question, that's the million-dollar question right there. You yeah. don't have to run schools. You, you don't have to run teams. You don't have to do podcasts. You just... You made your million dollars right there if you can yeah. answer that question, Dino. Well, I think dude, I think it just all comes back to mindset. Hey, like it's, it's that's all it is. And even going way back now to you know when you're talking about your surgery and watching that, um, like was that a mindset thing that you just want to overcome, or did you just just generally were you just interested? Because I just I'm interested because with my surgery today, I'll go into it after I hear what you say. But the reasons behind why I wanted to do it, and just I want to see if they're similar to what what you had. Uh, yeah, no, no. So no particular reason at all for me and no, I never have any dramas with that. So I literally watched the whole surgery and I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. So like, I, I had a clamp that pulled my forearm apart and I literally watched my surgeon put like a, an electric sort of drill top thing that had a screwdriver thing on the end and and, and putting screws in because a plate was going under my radius and I'm looking at my bone there. And, and then obviously, you know, you've got X amount of drugs in your system for the surgery. And I, I remember nodding off and going to sleep a little bit and then coming back again and looking over and then watching the last half of the surgery. So, but, but no, Hey, and that's not, it's neither here nor there. It's, it doesn't mean anything in particular. It's just something that I've never had uh, an issue with. I used to be able to give myself acupuncture when I had a, a, a broken bone in my hand when I come back from America one year. Uh, my physio taught me how to give myself acupuncture. So I used to be able to tap needles in and put them in. And so all that, I, I never, um, never really had a drama with any of that type of stuff. So yeah. True. So it didn't feel like you overcame anything when you did it. It just felt like you just, you just watched something you were interested in. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no overcoming of anything with something like that. I'd never, um, as far as graphic True. stuff, I'd, yeah, never had a drama with that. So, um, and then I think after that, I've, I watched some more surgeries after that as well. I, <laughs> you I just got, you just, I was going to say, you've just gotten hooked. <laughs> you've got, <laughs> got the surgery. Yeah, and, and it was actually, 
to be honest, it was my request because it was it was my second surgery on my wrist, and my first one I got put out, and I'm the type of person. I guess everyone's different. Some people, when they come out of a general anaesthetic, they'll start swinging or they'll throw up. Or I always came out really well out of a general anaesthetic. I never had any dramas, but just for some reason, I just put in a request when you know when you go and have your meeting pre-surgery with your with your surgeon, and I just said, hey is there a way that I can stay awake for this or do I have to be put out? And he said, no, we can, we can put a block in your arm. Mm. Um, and so it's an injection that goes in under your, in your armpit and literally your arm goes dead. Mm. So uh, I, I still remember I was sitting there and they put it in and he'd lift my arm up and he'd go, can you feel it? And I'm just like, no, it's cool. And I could hold my arm up by myself and then he'd lift it up again. He goes, how's that? And it just went donk and just hit the bed. And I went, ah, oh, I can't move my arm. <laughs> so I went, yeah, we're sweet. We're good to go. So we, um, and then the next, the next move of course was, he said, now look, I'm going to have to strap your right arm to the bed. He said, I know you're, you're cool. Everything's fine, but you just never know. You might, you might skits out halfway through the surgery and start wanting to punch on with me. So, um, so I had my, my right arm was strapped to the bed and I, I remember at one stage halfway through the surgery looking and my arms up here and I got people everywhere and, and I looked down in a drugged out state to my right arm and I'm looking, I'm going, Oh, yep, that's tied down. And then I look back and my skin's pulled about this far apart with, uh, with a plate getting put in there. So, but Hey, it was uh, it was all very very calm and no problem. Oh man, uh, it's funny you talk about that because it was like that's exactly what I've experienced today. But mine mine was a bit different because I've got both of them done, and when I've got the first one done, I knew I could watch, and I I glimpsed over halfway through, and I thought, no, nah, no, nah, like I don't want to see that. It's not for me. Like I'm just not into that stuff. <laughs> and then going into this one, I kind of was thinking about more and more, and kind of had this battle in my brain whether I want to watch it or not. And I thought to myself, I had this idea of now that I've started to coach kids and I'm really like trying to push them to get the most out of themselves and really like go towards that pain and discomfort, like whether it be on a training ride or whether it be like having an ice bath or whether it be just pushing themselves to see what they can actually endure. And I felt like if I'm going to put that into kids or promote that, I've got to do it myself. So I thought, well, this is something to overcome. This is pain. This is discomfort. This is all the things you don't want. So I'm like, well, if I can train myself and look at it and go through it, like obviously that's going to be something to build on. So wasn't, wasn't pleasant at all. And I remember like even the, the, the sound, like the tearing of your skin as it happened and watching it and seeing it was a pretty visual thing. And I actually went into, I went into shock about halfway through it and I just got this, I started sweating, color just felt, <laughs> fell out of me i just got super hot i was like started to kind of panic and then i just went like into this calm place and i started breathing and got out of it and then i looked back up and kind of kept watching it like you said it's your arms split open and they're just chopping away at stuff and i i could deal with it then it was funny i wore a heart monitor and you could see where my heart spiked and then came back down and then spiked again and then slowly came back down but very very full-on experience but after afterwards very happy that i did it and even now they I haven't taken any painkillers, any, any neurofin, nothing. And I got to tell you, it fucking hurts like hell right now. But like, I understand like going through that is going to be something I can obviously learn from and like, okay, well, if I can endure this, it's just like, what, what, like then you go on a training ride or do something and you're like, well, I can push harder. I can go further. And it's just like that pain teacher of like where your level of pain and discomfort 
where you can put it is crazy. It's, 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 un, it's unreal. Yeah. And, um, I can appreciate where you're at with that for sure. hundred percent. I wish I could join you on that one, but not nah, for me. I just wanted to watch. It was, just, <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is, uh, this is pretty cool. But, um, and, and I didn't feel, I didn't feel any pain. I think maybe I had more painkillers in my system. Well, no, I couldn't feel anything because I had a full block in my arm, but so there was certainly no pain. Um, and the graphic side of things doesn't uh, bother me too much. So it was more, it was kind of like watching a cool TV show, you know. <laughs> it was like, it was watching, I was watching a bit, bit of uh, NCIS or something. But um, Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of anatomy going on. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it, uh, I, I still vividly remember it. And, and I've, still, I've still got the plate and screws up in my top drawer up in the, up in the bedroom from that, uh, from that operation. So, yeah. Dude, I was, um, I was going all good in a good place. And one of the things they told me from the first surgery, which they forgot to tell me this surgery is they've got this little machine that burns the um, end of your blood vessels to stop them from obviously bleeding out. But every now and again, they can hit a nerve. Anyway, they hit a nerve, which I was imagine, imagine you grab the most powerful electric fence you've ever grabbed and it wow. shot, but it, but it was like inside my body and I didn't expect it at all. And I was in this calm spot and I had a friend actually filming the whole operation and you see my full body just like jump and my heart just shot up. I think it got to like 120 or something and I just wow. like put me in this panic, but oh, <laughs> just lots of lessons today. Lots of, yeah. And then, and then he was freaking out. Like the guy has never filmed a surgery before, let alone been around blood. And he's just like, I don't know if I want to be in here. And even when he started filming, he's like, I think I'm just going to leave as soon as we start cutting. Anyway, he pulled through and filmed the whole thing. And yeah, it's yeah. Weird. Wow. You guys had a roller coaster ride today. <laughs> oh man. Like going to look like the shock thing that, that really got me. But Dude, I, if, if we build something out of it and kind of it builds a bit of a story into what happens because like yeah. the whole mindset thing, even just the fact of watching it and being it, it's just like I just feel like it's building something that could be really cool and I'm I'm super excited for the future, man, and what's to come and how everything's happening and, yeah, just in, just in a good spot at the moment, which is which is sick to have. Um, I was going to ask you as well because I've just recently um, purchased a house right around where you do high country tours, but I've got a place in yes. Bright now, so you have to come visit not far from actually um, Ryan McGill race place which is going to be cool but i was going to talk awesome what a beautiful part of the world oh dude i'm 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 over the moon i've got like this kind of plan of where i want to be and what i want to do and you'd know better than anyone else what the riding's like there for mountain biking just the people in general and place but yeah very very excited but with the with the tours because they they kick off soon again now that everything's kind of freeing up where's um where's your first ones happening yeah, so um, I'm actually having a little bit of a fun recon ride tomorrow with uh, a good buddy of mine, Rob Eva, who's the boss of Tram Australia. Yeah. So we're we're heading up um, uh, we're heading up to uh, Woods Point. Uh, we're doing a little bit of a recon ride. It's 85 k's of dirt road heading up uh, um, towards Jamison, and we're going to map out a couple of different routes that we can potentially go up that way. So that's just a little ride tomorrow, but this weekend. We're doing a two-day recon ride that's going to take in a full day up in the high country. So I'll get to catch up with Magoo and Huffy, my uh, lead out and sweep riders. You know the boys up there very yeah. well. Um, and uh, I believe I believe it's um, Paddy's 21st birthday on Saturday night as well. So Magoo may be a little bit secondhand <laughs> on Sunday for our high country tour ride. But uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be good as far as our first tour goes it's december 11th 12th 13th 14th 
And man, it's been a long time coming. I've got four sold out tours ready to go, but this first one was supposed to happen about two weeks after we went into lockdown at the start of the year. So you can imagine, and I just, I cannot begin to explain how excited I've been to launch this uh, and the opportunity I've got from Honda and Michelin and Fox and, you know, my, my sponsors to make this happen. It is, um, man, I've just been sitting there and then to get put into lockdown and what we've gone through uh, as Melbournians down here, you know, for, I guess for a while there, you know, we were, um, we were that, that town that we were that city in the, in the world that everyone looked at and just went, Oh, those poor bastards, you know, mm. like that's, I'm so glad we're not there, but I guess we come out the other side now and, I just, I, I, I've said this to a few lads and I'll say it to you now. I can tell you at the end of the second day, December the 12th, when we're up in the high country, there's going to be a certain point where we get to the highest peak of the highest mountain that we're on. And I'm just going to stop for a second and I'm going to look out over the, over the, uh, the horizon and I'm just going to stop and uh, take it all in. And I've been thinking about that for the last six months and it's going to be pretty damn cool. I tell you. Well, it just gives you a new appreciation to, to what it, to what it is and where it is and and everything like that and it's just like an adversary adversity to go through this and then being up there it's going to be it's pretty spe- it's a pretty special place to me as well being around there and going up to like I always go up to Mount Buffalo or hike Bogon or something and you're up there and you oh, you, you, so you have this sense of just like I don't know just I don't know a bit of a connection with everything and just like really understand the beauty and it's something that I think a lot of people would love love to experience and that's obviously something you can give someone. But for the date, what is it? December second. That that's the day. Yeah, de- December December eleventh is our is our first day where we head up from Jembrook and we make our way. We've got three hundred and eighty five k's that we uh, we trek up to to end up in Paul Punker, and we're staying with Pronky and and, and the guys at uh, at the Alpine Village Cottages there down on the river. It's just oh man, I can picture it now. We're going to be uh, swimming in the rock pools down there and. Uh, Oh man, I just can't wait to get away from uh, from here and get up there. It's going to be so cool. No, I'm um, I'm really excited. And even like you mentioned, you kind of if these go as well as you hope, and I think they can go. You were even talking to me about like possibly doing mountain bike tours or something of that nature, like similar thing around the same area. That's it. And I did mention that to you because the business model that we've built for these high country tours and how popular it's proving. There's no reason why it can't translate directly across to mountain bikes. I mean, all, everything else is in place. It's just instead of being on adventure bikes, going up fire trails and some of the most beautiful, you know, sites that you can imagine and coming back and cooking up a barbecue with some of the finest steaks or whatever, swimming in the rock pools, having a beer with your mates or whatever. Hey, we do it on mountain bikes instead of adventure bikes, you know, like it's, um, oh, it's, it's a it's a gimme, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Well, I was gonna say I've got a place. I was gonna say I got a place in Bright now, so we're we're good to go. <laughs> no, we uh, we can we can throw them on e we can throw them on e as well because that's another thing I wanted to ask you because every time I, I get on this podcast, somehow it always turns back to how good um, e bikes are. <laughs> <laughs> we go no matter what, it just we end up diving back into that. But that's something for sure. Even like something you could push, um, I could push to just say Scott or something like that because that's something I'm sure they'd love to get behind. But like you said, it's just like you pretty much get a license to print money with the way that place is blowing up and the the places you can go and everything that can happen. So that's um that's that's really something I would I would like to get behind and and be a part of for sure. 
And hey, it's it's all about doing something that you love. If you can get paid to do something that you love and that you're passionate about, that's that's what it's all about. And mm. you know, not not everyone gets to stay in their career path that they did. You know, they they did a sport, they made it all the way through, and then to be able to stay and be able to do it and do what you love and get paid to do it, that's mm. you know, that is just absolute gold right there so whenever an opportunity comes up for me it's been a slight shifting so I've still got my junior team that I'm running my motocross schools my ADB MXTV stuff but instead of having to do a hundred schools a year all by myself kind of thing I've got other people that have picked up the slack there and I've been able to move across and do the high country tours thing which I'm just so passionate about, you know, like I'm mm. just, I'm frothing on the whole idea of being able to do that. So, Hey, if we, if we got the opportunity to be able to do, you know, even if we did two, a couple, two, maybe three a year or something, you know, pick mm. the right time of the year when the dirt's good, you know, nice moist dirt and, and uh, not too dusty, not in the middle of winter when we've got snow everywhere, but we pick the right time of the year. I reckon it, uh, it'd be, it'd work a treat, mate. No, I think I think it's a great idea. And I was going to say, are you guys still go over to Mount Beauty at all with these tours and go see Mitch? We catch up oh, with him, of course, hundred um, percent. Yeah, last time we went up there, we 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 dropped into his restaurant Stockpot, and oh, mate, the kangaroo <laughs> that he cooks up there, wow! Stop it. <laughs> so, look, without a doubt, we'll have to. Um, we always drop in and 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 see Mitch for sure. Um, but oh, mate. Mount Beauty is um, beautiful, but just one of so many different places that we go up there. And you mentioned before Mount Buffalo, the ride to the top of Mount Buffalo and the views from the top. If you haven't seen that before, they just mm. blow your mind. It's just crazy. No, whenever I go up there, I feel like you're just on another planet. It's just this weird outcrop of rock and just how, yeah, that's just, that's a very special place to home. So I, I love going there. But it's funny how you say when you go visit Mitch, I remember he, he told me a story how you wanted to come cook some kangaroo for 30 people, however many it was. And he's like, I'm not bloody doing that. Like, oh, I've got Ricky, I've got Ricky Carmichael here that wants to meet you. And he just apparently got, got hung up the phone, got in the car and got over there. He's like, all right, I'll, I'll come over for that. All right, we'll do it, Ricky. Let's do it. We've got the goat coming. We'll cook up some kangaroo. I just, you just had that. Just, just, just the ace card constantly. Just got that in the back pocket. Yes. <laughs> no no that's that's really cool to see and it's really cool to have like um i guess such a small industry and how everyone's connected in that way and can and can obviously build off each other because obviously the it being good for mitch it being good for you it's something i'd 100 percent like to get involved in and can see the see the benefits of it so it's it's really cool how you do have that crossover and do you find because i've obviously i've got a crossover with yamaha and i write as an ambassador for them and you've got a crossover with cannondale was that something that you just felt came naturally because of how small the industry is or how did that all kind of come about yeah i've uh i've always had a little bit of a, a connection with the bicycle side of things back in my days with racing we just rode xc bikes and if you look at some of the best american riders like you, well chad reed's an aussie but living in america and one of the best riders in the world justin brayton all those guys in america they tend to ride xc and ride around in lycra right yeah. now in australia we tend to not do that for some reason we tend to ride longer travel no lycra um at, you know sending big jumps or whatever and i know that comes back to their they're doing it for training and fitness etc but yeah it's um back here we, we tend to have a little bit more of a, um, there's a lot more of a crossover from the motocross side of things to the longer travel, not so much downhill. Yeah. I mean, I've I got a downhill, but I've got your down, <laughs> old downhill bike. Um, 
you know, but the longer travel, uh, the longer travel suspension enduro bikes, it seems to be ingrained into our motocross heritage here. You know, like if you're, if you're a good motocross rider, you tend to send it on mountain bikes and it's just, it's part of, uh, part of our life here in Australia. For me personally, the Cannondale thing came around through Fox and it's under the PSI umbrella. So Cannondale, I guess there's SRAM, there's Fox, there's a bunch of different companies that are under the same umbrella. The opportunity arose and um, yeah, they've been, they've been great. They hooked me up with bikes. I've got a, I've got a Cannondale Materineo e-bike, which I, you've mentioned e-bikes before. Um, it, mate, they're, they're so much fun. And I've got a cool little short travel Cannondale Habit 130 rear travel i think josh bryceland he um that's what he rides all the time this little habit um and i never thought i'd love a, a little short travel as much as i do they're so playful do, do you have a, a little short travel no i don't but i actually rode that exact bike just to friends the other day just just around a car park and yeah i know you like you mean it's just like real playful and just I, I almost, it's funny, I was looking at um, cross-country bikes the other day and I, I was looking at these sparks and I was just like, you know, you're kind of getting older when you like, you suddenly, <laughs> XC bikes are jumping out at you. Know, I looked at, I got a new road bike the other day and oh man, it's just, yeah, yeah, I got an addict and I just, it's, it's a weird thing that changes in your brain when you start seeing these bikes and you're just like, oh, what's happening? But it's, it's I'm, really, oh. I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited, especially to get, yeah, like a short travel bike and kind of, like you say, feel like the nimbleness and plainness in it, playfulness yeah. in it. But no, that's yeah, uh, absolutely. No, that's that's cool. Do you feel like even when you ride, like the crossover between you and you ride like a downhill bike, then kind of crosses over to moto in a certain way, or just even just keeps the love for it a bit more because you can have the the disconnect as well. Um, it, oh man, it's funny. I don't know if you're going to be able to relate to this, but as a motocross rider, if, if the average punter would probably think that we're going to be most comfortable getting off a heavy motocross bike onto a downhill bike. <laughs> Uh, I remember, <laughs> nah. I remember feeling pretty damn comfy on my enduro bike, and I'd go and send most most jumps that we'd come across. I feel really comfy, and I went and bought myself a downhill bike. And logic told me that hey, we've got more suspension. Uh, this this surely is going to jump a hell of a lot more like a motocross bike than anything else I've ever ridden. But uh, you learn pretty quickly that a downhill bike will jack you over the handlebars as quick as you can, uh, as quick as you can blink an eyelid. If you hit any form of a kicky jump, those things they just don't jump like a like an enduro. Yeah. And I had no idea. And um, look, I, I, I didn't get jacked over the bars, but I got a couple of boots, and I learned pretty damn quickly that hey, it's not it's not just simply a case of the more travel, the easier it is to jump. They might land better but they certainly don't deal with takeoff ramps uh uh quite as you would expect is this is this the scott you're talking about as well the gambler no this this was a, a specialized s-works demo that i got off a, a little while ago i got off a mate of mine which is probably one of the slackest you know uh um i guess laziest uh, downhill bikes have probably ever made and one of the worst that you'd want to have to pedal along on flat ground you know but they're, they're meant for going down almost vertical and just sending it and they feel like a lounge chair i guess but mm. they don't like jumping much whereas your your downhill that i've got at the moment um <laughs> man, that feels like an enduro bike so um so yeah yeah it's uh, horses for courses but yeah mm. totally different 
That's that's funny how that worked out. I remember you sending me a photo. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I got your downhill bike, and I was just like, oh, I didn't think that would have been like sold on again so quickly. But a little fun fact: that bike that you're actually on that got me my best result um, in 2019. So that's had a seventh place at um, the World Cup, <laughs> which I thought wow, was pretty and, funny. And am I am I right in thinking that when you sold this bike to Alex, it was yep. a full 29er, and he turned it into a mullet, and now I have it as a mullet. And now you've gone and you started riding a mullet as well now. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I changed um, not long after, actually, after I sold those bikes, I just started playing around with it after the end of 2019 and loved it straight away. Like instantly felt more comfortable, felt I could be over the back wheel, almost like you're on a moto because of how it's set up. But you feel in the bike, not on the bike. And I see the benefit of 29 wheels for carrying speed, but that bike is so light and it carries speed so well anyway i felt like the benefits of cornering through pretty much everywhere you just feel more stable on the bike but definitely something i wish i played with a bit more earlier in the year like last year but we we know now it's just kind of sad now because i haven't actually i don't think i've raced yet with a mullet i think i've last race i did was yeah 29 29 but that shows how long i haven't raced for almost a year now which is 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 crazy Wow. Well, it seems to be the way to go. Everyone seems to be doing well, Most people seem to be doing it now, don't they? Mm. Well, it's one of those things that's just like, I guess you, you almost turn into a sheep in a way because I know uh, like Loic did it before anyone else. And it, it's even funny. My dad's going to hate me because about five years ago, he was just, he's old school motor rider, race enduro, bit of a bit of a tinkerer and whatnot. And he just said, no, 27, 29. And I was like, shut up, dad. Like if, if, it, if, it, if, it, should, if it should have been done, it would have been done kind of mentality. And now I've just kind of got to eat my own words when it actually, he was right. But I guess that's one of the things, man. It's like you just got to find your little things to tweak and play with and, and, and change and whatnot. And that's like you said, even with that grip tape on your bike, like that little 1%, but it's something I feel like if you have a good relationship with a mechanic and a rider, if they can build from each other and try and grow and, and work on the bike. And yeah, actually it's cause that's the thing you, you're, we're working with milliseconds, like nothing. And like, even like you say, getting kicked off a jump, that might be one click slower rebound or one click, click harder compression or something. But is that something you with mountain biking now, do you like, do you really get into that kind of fine tuning of things or you kind of just set and forget and just hope you don't die? <laughs> no. I'm a little bit OCD with, with my settings and, and whether whether that's motocross or, or mountain bikes. And I've got so many different bikes. I've got four different mountain bikes. And, you know, I could pretty much tell you what fork pressure I run on all four of them. And, you know, tire pressures, I, you know, run different ones. I, I'm, I'm kind of weird. I run a, I run a cush core in the front, but not in the back. You know, and my mates are like, why yes. are you doing that? And I'm like, well, I... I I hate a real active, lively front end. So I run a cush core in the front because I want it to be planted through rock gardens and stuff like that. And I can run a lower tire pressure with the back. I want it to be a bit more lively and poppy on the jumps and stuff. And so I confuse the, the shit out of some of my friends with my setups, but I'm pretty OCD with my setups. And yeah, when it comes back to, uh, to suspension and clickers, etc. um, Look, I, I don't muck around. I, I tend to know where I want them to be. And once they're set, I, I don't play with them too much. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty finicky with that stuff, yeah. Did you play around with a cush core on the back or you just went front, front's how it is and just that's all you've run? Or did you, play, yeah, did you go back and forth or how did that come about? Yeah, so I, I run cush core front and rear on the e-bike. Yep. Purely because of the, the weight of the e-bike, you know, and, and with the back end, 
oh man, so easy to get a puncher with the back end. You, sl- you, you know, you hit a rock with that weight going through. But on uh, your downhill bike, I run a cush core on the front and no, uh, no cush uh, core on the back. Because yeah. on the downhill bike, I love the back feeling poppy and I, I don't want a, a sluggish rear, rear end on the, on the back of it. But on the front, I, I really need a planted front end. That might sound like I'm talking absolute smack here and, and have no idea what I'm talking about. But I, it's it, in my mind, uh, I kind of feel like it, it kind of works for me. So. Well, maybe we should find out. You know how you're saying before you're not going to come back to a race? I feel like we've got to put this tyre set up to the test and actually see how it goes. If you come smoke everyone, then you can just get them and say, fuck off, get off my back. But Otherwise, it could go the other way, but... Would you do like a yeah, Vic, no. would you do a Vic series race or something like that, or you just you reckon you just over overcommit to it? Yeah, I, look, um, I go back to my my boy Noah, my eight year old boy is uh, he's state champ BMX at the moment, but he uh, he loves mountain bike more than BMX, right? So if he gets into that and starts doing some little races, and all my mates are there and doing some stuff, I, look, I I don't know, I. I, um, I'm not going to say 100% definitely not, but I, um, I don't, I definitely don't want to commit to, to anything. So just, honestly, you couldn't imagine how many times I get asked every single week, I'll get invited to go to a race somewhere. Like last year I got invited to go do the vet world motocross championships and got offered a factory Honda to go race it, you know, and I'm just like, uh, I'm like, no. And, and I've said no for that long and that often that now if I come back and race, I'm kind of like, oh, no, I'm going to – what about all those people that have asked me every week for the last 15 years or whatever to go racing? So True. Can I, I feel like I can see your arm getting twisted even as you're saying <laughs> it, that it's kind of could happen. Um, I've actually well, never – mates, that's what it is. <laughs> I was going to say, I've never raced a motocross race. So if I make you do – if I make race a motocross race, you've got to come race a Vic downhill or something. Maybe even enduro, oh. like an e-bike enduro or something. That would, be, that would be fun. Yeah, look, hey, that could work, but I'm still not committing. <laughs> <laughs> not going to ride the side on the dotted line. <laughs> no, oh, I, man. I – I'm not ruling it out though, but but um, if enough of my mates get together and we decide uh, we'll go do a, do a round on the e-bikes or something like that just for a bit of fun, that if if we did it on the enduro bikes, the amount of training that would have to go into it, man, oh, not in, I, I I just can't be bothered putting that <laughs> training in. Well, when you come on um, the 11th of December, would you bring your e-bikes and trail bikes up with you? Um. No, because I don't. I'm not going to have enough room. We've got a we've got a support vehicle that's going to have the trailer, which is going to have a 450L, a Honda Sierra 450L in it, a spare bike, and then it's going to be filled with about 15 gear bags and spare tires and all kinds of stuff. And we're all going to be riding up on our Africa twin. So I, I honestly think for that particular trip, a we're not going to have room. B by the time we get off the bike at 5.30 and Apples is handing us our first beer of probably a few, um, I, th- I think we'll probably struggle for time. But, mate, we're, we're up there that often that it's, it's easy to – I was up there not that long ago. We, we, brought, um, we brought our bikes up and, and went and rode McGilvray's, some Magoo's and Riley's property there. 
mm. and uh, went and sent his, his road gap in um, first run from the top, which was, uh, he just looked at it and just went, whoa, okay, let's do this. And, and it, it, was, it was a bit of frost around, like we couldn't feel the end of our fingers. It was about 7.30 in the morning. And from there, we headed straight across to Mystic and did a full day there. So, mate, there'll be plenty of time because um, I've got a funny feeling I may be able to help you a little bit with your motocross, but I think I need more help from you on the mountain bike than you need from me on the motocross <laughs> bike. So perhaps we come up with some kind of a contra deal here. Well, I was going to say, I know how that bike works extra well. So you've already got, you've already got a leg up there, but no, I'm, I'm excited. I reckon we can work something out, but even going back that, yeah. um, Riley McGilvray's place, that's something out of a, uh, it's like a, it's like a wet dream for any 15 year old kid out there. That's, that's pretty incredible what they've got going on there. And, obviously the work they're putting to make that happen. Yeah, it's incredible. It's so good. And um, he's such a good kid too. Um, I've coached him. He's obviously not motocross. He's, he's off-road, but he's one of the best in the country in his, mm. in his age category. And he's come and done a few of my motocross schools. And he's a good kid. He really listens and, and picks up stuff quickly. So it's been, um, it's been quite cool to, to watch him, to be able to coach him and to work on a few things and then watch him come and just dominate that series. Mm. You know, you just see uh, he killed it. And then we always stay at the house up there. So I think he secretly can't wait till he's old enough to get his license and can get out and join his, his dad and, and, and the rest of us and come and do these rides. Is Man, he's a machine. I mean, the, mm. you know all those trucks that they chop in and the, the boiler truck. I'm sure mm, you've done the yeah. boiler up there, man. It's some of the gnarliest trails in the country. Mm. It's funny you say that. Like I know when I met that kid, within five minutes of meeting him, you kind of you see it straight away. And you're just like you've you're like you're you're special in the way of like you you've got a long way to go. Like you've got a lot that you can achieve, and you see it instantly. And it's like it shines through. And I was going to even ask you, do you know? Does he train with anyone now in in where he's in Port Punka? Because I'm really excited about moving to Bright, even just like road cycling or mountain biking, and just having kids like that because. You know how you say it's very draining, but it can also be very rewarding. I see someone like that and I just know like, I feel like I've got some knowledge that can help you and you've got the excitement that can help me. And it's just like stuff like that builds both like longevity for me and wisdom for him is such an amazing thing to go back and forth with. Yeah. Uh, he's got youth on his side and he's, um, he's got an old, old head on his shoulders for such a young kid. It's funny. Like we'll be at Magoo's house and you know what it's like. It's like a, Oh man, it's it's almost like the punker pub, but it's at his house, you know. Like there's people everywhere, and it's like a resort almost. It's it's just beautiful there, and there'd just be people everywhere. There'd be like so many people hanging out, and then there's there's Riley, and he's just chilling, and you forget that he's just a young kid, you know. Like he's so young, he's got this old head on his shoulders, like he's 25, 26 or something. You know, he's not coming out and you know saying smart comments or. Or, 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 you know, being a bit cheeky or whatever. He's just such a well-mannered, good kid, always has something smart to say. He's probably more responsible than most of us older characters, actually, to tell the truth. <laughs> no, I did, I did notice that. I remember we went for a ride and we were all, like, he took us off one of his tracks that are obviously pretty gnarly. And we all pull up and we stop and everyone's kind of, like, got their tongue hanging out of their mouth. And he's kind of just, like, having a little chat. He's like, all right, let's go, guys, and just on to the yeah. next. And you just see him. He's just, like, he's just, yeah, he's hungry for it, which is, is really cool to see. And I... I and yeah, it's, it's awesome. it definitely helps it how how Magoo is his dad and just yeah it's a very cool family <laughs> it's, it's cool when you find a family like that in a racing racing community and you're just like yeah that's something special and something something cool to be a part of 
No, that's yeah, good. absolutely. They're a, they're a beautiful family, and um, and yeah, blessed to meet them. You know, a few years ago now, and from the moment that that I did, um, we, you know, we've kept in contact the whole time, and then actually to be able to, you know, Magoo is such an integral part of my high country tour is happening. You know, without yeah. him, you know, and without Huffy, I wouldn't be able to do it. And so those guys just went. I didn't even have to ask. I, I just sort of started mentioning it, and they just said let's do it. You know, what are you even, what are you even thinking about? Let's just do it. So um, I think when something like that comes together, um, it sort of happens for a reason. And I'm so lucky to have those kind of people on board helping me with it. It's pretty cool. No, I'm, I'm really excited to see how this goes. I think it's going to be, going to be a really cool thing. I got one more thing to ask you because my mate's been yeah. hassling, hassling me, my housemate, Carson Jury. He, he, he's seen the photos you put up in your new 450 and he's got to know like, what, what, what's it like? How's, how is that thing? Cause I got to say from what photos I've seen, it looks pretty fucking nice. It's very cool. The new 21, obviously Tim Geiser just went and, and won the world championship on it, but that's obviously not a production one. Mm. Um, the production bike straight out of the crate is seriously one of the best motors. I, I believe it's quite possibly the best production 450 motor ever made. Um, and it's a little bit better than the 2020, which is saying something, which was ludicrously good. Mm. The chassis is good. The suspension needs a little bit of tweaking straight out of the crate. So just like anything in its first incarnation, um, the 2020 model, last year's model, you know, we've had a few years of fine tuning that and coming out with a bike that straight out of the crate was amazing. The 2021 straight out of the crate, it needs a little bit of fiddling around to get the suspension bias right. Nothing too crazy. But overall, as far as potential goes, it has potential to be noticeably better than the 2020. I just can't say enough about the motor. It's mind-blowing. It's that good. Um, and, and you're a, you're a Yamaha 450, yeah? Yeah. So, so the Yamaha 450 is such a strong bottom-end, torquey motor. It's got that kind of torque, but it just keeps going and revving to like 12,000, 13,000 RPM. It's just crazy. So I'm um, right at the moment... I'm in the process of whacking. You probably you would have seen on, on my social media my, my colourful A-kit shower suspension uh, that I've bolted onto it. So the forks bolt straight into it. And we're in a bit of a mission at the moment to um, to transfer my A-kit shock from the 2020 and the oversized shaft and all the internals and everything. We're transferring that across to the 2021 shock. And uh, when we do, we'll have a bit of a fiddle around and get it dialed. But... Um, it's that time of the year with the new bikes coming out. I just got off the, the new 21 model Kawasaki 254 stroke today, um, which is all new top to bottom as well. So it's that time of the year where um, all these new bikes are coming out and, hey, I've got the best job in the world. I get to test them before they, uh, they go into the shop. So I had the first Honda before they, uh, before they went out and that was something that I was just praying, please let me have this first one. I need it. I need it in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome to actually have that opportunity to go from bike to bike and really feel the difference and really notice the changes. Was there any trouble with obviously the whole COVID thing with getting, with getting bikes or getting parts now? Was that pushed back? Because I know with myself and Yamaha, like I know they've been, um, it's been a bit of a struggle to get bikes and obviously all shops, it's been a struggle for everyone. That's like the industry kind of just blew up because we, you can go be by yourself on a motorbike and go get out in the bush. And I think a lot of people jumped on that. Yeah, I think um, more so the mountain bike industry than motocross, mate, to tell the truth. Uh, and, and I noticed that because that became my obsession during COVID because I couldn't ride a bloody motor, motocross bike. However, yeah. every single day I could ride 
some form of mountain bike. And just along with just about every other person in the country, in particular Melbourne, while we're in lockdown. And I think what happened was, in my personal opinion, I think a lot of companies, when COVID first hit, they thought, oh, no, we're going to get sunk. Every, everything's going under, we're done. And mm. so with their projections, they didn't order anywhere near enough or they didn't realise that they were about to have Christmas every yeah. week for about a year, right? So all of a sudden sales have just gone through the roof and no one can keep up. So, you know, distributors can't keep the shop supplied with product. The next thing people are coming in, you're trying to order a particular tyre that you want. I mean, me, for example, I'm I'm sponsored by um, Lusty Industries with a couple of products with ODI groups um, and and a couple of different things that they do. And, for example, I, I wanted a set of Dady handlebars and um, they're not going to be in until December, late December or something. And this was as of about six weeks ago. So um, just trying to get product, it's crazy. For me personally with Honda, I haven't noticed, and I don't know if it's because of their ordering, but particularly with this new 450, I just don't think they're going to be able to keep up with the demand. I don't think they're going to be able to supply the shops with the numbers that they want. So, um, and, and I'm not sure if that's so much an ordering thing rather than Japan being able to supply the rest of the world with what everyone's after, you know, it's, um, it's a sign of the times at the moment and who, who knows how long this glory run's going to last for, because it's one thing to, you know, have a massive amount of demand, but if you can't keep supply up to that, then your sales aren't going to reflect and you're not making the most of these times. So hopefully, Hopefully we can adjust because it'd be such a shame to not be able to translate all this demand into sales. Yeah, and really just grow the sport into what it could be. And do you do you have any thoughts on just say after, just say we fully come out of the COVID thing and we go back to normal, whether that will saturate the market as well with people reselling secondhand motorbikes? Because I know push bikes right now, you can't buy a two thousand five hundred dollar push bike anywhere like they're just everything's gone you go into bike shops and no discounts because they just they don't have like they don't have to they don't need a they don't need to be doing that but do you feel like there could be a, a run-on effect for when obviously we do come out and everyone just say it's like when people buy gym equipment and then they realize i can go back to gyms now and that's just going to saturate the market with with secondhand gym equipment but how like how do you feel is what's going to happen with with that yeah well i think we're kind of in the same circumstance at the moment with motocross bikes. Like I get X amount of bikes on the fleet for my junior team. We get a lot of 250s and then we get a lot of 450s for my coaching team and for myself. And at the end of each year, um, my bike sells pretty quickly because it only does about 10 hours. And I, I, my bike generally sells within two hours of popping it up on uh, social media. But a lot of our junior team 250s, they really struggle to sell them, you know, and my, my gun junior team riders, they get four bikes each a year, you know, times that by X amount of riders. There's a lot of 250s we're trying to get rid of. So quite often they'll get stuck with bikes and, you know, be trying to sell them sort of come January. Whereas at the moment we've got a lineup of people requesting bikes, man. There's more, mm-hmm. there's way more demand for our secondhand race team bikes than what we can actually supply. Mm. Well, I think that's what's kind of happening. Money's becoming cheap because obviously with the, even do I got, I just got an interest loan and it's 1.9% and they obviously want to keep the economy pumping, but then it's like no products coming in. So it's just like items are becoming super expensive and money's becoming real cheap. So it is, it is a weird time and hopefully, yeah, we can capitalize on it and really try and like grow 
grow the market, grow the sport. But yeah, it's going to be interesting. Let's hope it, um, let's hope it keeps going and it's not just a little glory period, mate. I'm, uh, I'm sure it'll keep plugging along, fingers crossed. No, I'm excited. Um, look, mate, I'll let you go now, but I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped if you actually came on your first podcast. We got you there after, <laughs> after how many years of racing? So many years, dude. Um, and, and, hey, like I mentioned to you in the past, I thought about, you know, starting my own podcast. So, so, so not only it's, it's, I've never hosted one, I've never participated in one, I've never even listened to one properly. So, so to get on and have a chat, I mean, really, it's... Um, it's it's no different than sitting down and having a good face to face interview, whether it's TV or whether you you know you're, you're doing an interview for a crowd in a Supercross or whatever. So it's um it's an absolute pleasure to talk to someone that's passionate and that uh you know it's someone like yourself that's an icon mm. in your in your sport that's so far removed from 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 mine, and yet you know our roads have travelled down you know, parallel, even though slightly different time periods, because I'm so old. Uh, however, uh, you're we, all right. still, uh, we, <laughs> we still, um, we still travel down parallel roads and we've got so many stories that we've been able to share. And I'm sure we've only touched the tip of the iceberg as to some of the, some of the funny stories that we could, uh, could tell probably not so much on camera, you know, that, that <laughs> probably get us into trouble. Well, it's, it is, I do find it funny. Like we've obviously never met in person, but just down the, the roads, of Instagram and mutual friends and whatnot, how you can kind of have this like connection and build something from it. But yeah, that is, it is a cool thing to, to do, but dude, I'm, I'm really excited to um, definitely get over to bright and actually, actually catch up and go for a ride. And like I said, hopefully this is the start of like coming out of what we're in now and, really appreciating what is there and i think i think yeah, absolutely mate. definitely look at the future as a as a pretty bright thing to come which is cool for sure for sure so uh thanks so much for having me on it's been an absolute pleasure and man, we've delved down a few different um deep holes and, and covered some some topics that i didn't think we were going to go down but that's part <laughs> of the journey man so thanks for um thanks for for taking me down that path no, nah, it's all good, man. I'm pretty ready for my my fucking hand is hurting now. It is, it is, it is. I've, even when we started doing the interview, I was like, their head points now and again. I'd get like a sharp shock of like in the nerve, and I'd just kind of be focused. I lose my train of thought because uh, even before I did this, man, I was just like, I should take some painkillers just so this is is yeah. more more on point. And we started talking. I'm just like, oh, this is another another lesson to overcome. Well, dude, I seriously, I was wondering what Dean Lucas I was going to get tonight, like all day. Like I've been, I've been filming MXTV. I come back, I just had my ass hanging out of being that busy. I took my boy Noah for an hour and a half ride around Listerfield. I come back, I'm cooking up steaks for the missus on the barbecue. I just flat out and literally about five minutes before our podcast was supposed to start, I've jumped in a shower to get out and get ready and come down and then try to get me bloody headphones working on this thing for my first ever podcast because I'm such a rookie. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, Dino's getting surgery on his hand today. Is How the hell is he going to be able to operate and be able to host oh. a, a podcast? Uh, and, and sure enough, you did it, uh, you did it drug-free and just mm. with, a, with a bit of pain, mate. So tip of the cap to you, bro. No, I'm pretty, yeah, I'll take, <laughs> so I'll, I'll take it through my day anyway. I got up, um, went and got surgery, did that. After I did that, um, met up with one of my, the friend that actually filmed the surgery, had a chat with him, got lunch with him. He, him and I actually get along super, super well. So had a little chat with him, 
jumped in the car, went from surgery, went over and actually put a deposit on this house I'm moving on into. So I went to Beechworth, left, yeah. Be- left Beechworth, came back um, over to, um, where did I come? Go to Aubrey, so I had to cross the border, go through the checkpoint and everything. Went over, brought a cruiser bike for my mate for his birth, my housemate that's, um, <laughs> that's turning 20, uh, 31 tomorrow. So I got him a cruiser bike. And then when I was going to the shop, the kid that I coached was actually just walking down the street. So I bumped into him, met up with him. Um, he came, went back to his place because I'm setting up a program for him at the moment. So I like, sat down with him, worked out a program that he was happy with and we can work towards. So did that, jumped back in the van. Drove, that's when you said, oh, can we do eight? And I'm just like, yeah, mate, I'm flat out. I probably shouldn't be this flat out after surgery, but I, I like to go, man. I like to just, yeah, just get it done, hey. And I feel like, yeah. and like you said, it's just like, are you going to be all right? Are you going to like, is everything going to be good? And I'm like, man, I... It gives me like, it's that little chip on your shoulder. Like you kind of, I I like surprising people. If I can surprise someone by doing something like trying to do all these things and kind of wear all hats and whatever, fucking gives me a high, gives me a high for sure. So, so no, I was, I was pumped on today and I'm bummed. Yeah, dude, I'm pumped that you actually, um, you came on. It's really cool. Thank you so much for having me on, mate.